When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of A Fistful of Collars with none other than the very special guest himself, Keenan Cornelius. Thanks for having me, guys. Man, this is a pleasure. This is pure luck getting you here in the studio uh, this week. Why are you in Texas? What are you doing? Yeah, we. I mean, we talked about it for a while, right? Trying to, I wanted to come out here and do some stuff with you guys, but I wasn't in the area. So I'm here for a super fight um, that's on Saturday. I'm fighting Tex Johnson, which is... You guys are streaming it. Correct? We are indeed. Okay, yeah, so third coast grappling in Houston on Saturday nights. So you got Tex Johnson, and tell us a little bit about this match. What can we uh, What can we expect? Um, it's a gi match, so probably some worm guard stuff <laughs> from <laughs> you me. Think? Well, actually, from Tex. So Tex is going to worm guard me. <laughs> going to showcase how to defend it. Nice. Awesome. Have you um or have you fought Tex in the gi before? I have. I fought him at uh, the Abu Dhabi trials in like 2016 gotcha. or something. I think he had just got his black belt. So it was a little little while ago. Yeah, it was a while ago. And then you fought him no gi I recently. No gi, yeah. He has he's very intense. He's, intense. He fights he's a physical really kind of guy. Huh? He's, he's, he's a bit bigger than you. N- no one is bigger than me. <laughs> I work very he's hard. Must at be an optical coming. illusion then. Yeah, he just I'm, looks bigger. I'm much bigger. No, I think he's like 220 or something. He's pretty big. I'm like 200 pounds. But uh, yeah, he, last time I fought him, he came out. Super, both times I fought him, he comes out super aggressive. And like trying tries to keep that pace and kind of overwhelm you with the mm. intensity, but a lot of people have that kind of style against me. I feel like, and so, but I'm pretty good at sort of just absorbing the impact yes. and sort of like just maintaining grips and ch- like weathering that early storm before I can get to my game. So yeah, one, yeah. one, that, one yeah. that comes to mind is uh, Muhammad Ali at the uh, finals of uh, Pants in 2018. Yeah. He just came at you with that everything. Was, that was brutal. Yeah, <laughs> I had really bad cardio for that event too because mm. I was trying to bulk up to super heavy. And I couldn't do it. I only got to 210 was the heaviest I could get. Mm. And I was, like, force-feeding myself. I trained less jiu-jitsu to lift more so I could make, reach the weight I was trying to get there. Because I was, like, self-conscious about being too light for super heavy. <laughs> so I was, like, training less to, like, try and lift more and get bigger. And I felt super strong. It was the strongest I ever felt. You think that's kind of your, your physical limit? That's as big as you can get? I'm sure I could get bigger. But, I mean, I was lifting every day, mm. like, every day. What's the weight for super heavy? 220, 220 right? 222 or something. Or maybe 218. It's like one of the twos. It's like minus two or plus two from 20, I know. Gotcha, gotcha. But, yeah, it's pretty hard for me to gain weight like that. So you think you'll stay it? Do you, you want to stay competing at super heavy? If I could get bigger, I, I can't. I think i got to stay heavyweight. Heavyweight? Yeah, or drastically change my diet or something. Mm-hmm. Man, people don't realize how much hard work it is to kind of pack that much weight and keep it on your frame, right? Yeah, I think it's different for everyone. Like mm-hmm. some people, they just gain, if they go lift to the gym, they just gain too much weight. Right. Yeah. But it definitely, You're not one of those guys. No, it's really hard for me. I lose weight like crazy. Like if I miss a meal, I'll lose like five pounds. <laughs> like if I don't eat dinner one night or something. So it's a struggle for me. So tell us about your training at the moment then. What's the, what's the kind of deal? Because, you know, um, the last couple of months you competed a little bit less. You know, you were really busy in the first half of 2018, right? You yep. did like a lot of opens. You did uh, 
pretty much all the majors except for Brazilian nationals. Yeah. And then um, you had a couple of super fights, a couple of smaller tournaments in the latter half of the year. But 2019, okay, you got this super fight coming up this weekend in the Gi. But what's what's the plans looking like and, and how are you training for that? Yeah, well, um, I actually, after Worlds of 2018, I had been competing straight almost twice a month for like a year straight. Because after Worlds of 2017, I had just come off a knee injury. That was the year I didn't do Worlds, I believe. Because I dislocated my kneecap and I was out for a month right before Worlds, so I couldn't compete. So when I healed, I just immediately got into competition right after Worlds, starting with, uh, I don't remember what was the first tournament I did. I went to Singapore and did like a super fight. And then I started doing as many opens as I could to try and go get higher on the ranking ladder. And so I pretty much competed nonstop from June, the end of June 2017 to June 2018. For like a year straight, I fought everything. And uh, the phone is buzzing in my pocket. <laughs> <coughs> I fought everything, and so then after Worlds of 2018, I kind of chilled a little bit because you can't go that hard for that long. A year, a year yeah. straight. It was literally a year. Of that's a, that's a hell of a month. pace hard to, to keep sustain, up, right? Probably, yeah. It was tough. Um, it was fun, but it's tough on you, you know. And I was training a lot and traveling a lot, and it kind of gets a little tedious after mm. a while. So you got to take your breaks because jujitsu is a seasonless sport, you know. So you kind of have to impose your own seasons to stay sane. So it sounds like you're going to be a little bit more selective in the events you're competing in this year? Yeah, and I tried to stay – I was trying to still compete a lot the last six months, but there just wasn't much happening. Mm-hmm. Like, it kind of slows down. It turns more into a no-gi. And ev- uh, every other year when there's no ADCC, there's considerably less no-gi events, it seems like. So on the, on the like, the off year of ADCC, right. it's kind of slow in the yeah. summertime. So uh, it was pretty much just no-gi worlds, and I had that super fight. Um, but they're around the same time, so I couldn't do both. Um, but yeah, coming up this year, I'm not going to make it to Europeans this year because I'm here in Texas doing seminars and this super fight. I'd have to leave the day after, so it's kind of too much to go do that as well. Um, but for the other majors, I'm going to be there, and any super fight events that come up, I'll probably do as well. So let's just break that down. That's like pans in March. You're, you want me to commit? No, no. no. <laughs> let's lay it out I'm how it looks like. So you, you, the majors, uh, for people who don't know, the majors yeah. are pans in March. Uh, Brazilian nationals. It's one of the majors. No. No, Brazilian nationals, no. <laughs> uh, but Pans in March, Worlds at the end of May, beginning of June. Yeah. What about World Pro? How do you feel about that? Oh, I do like I like World Pro. I like yeah. the new events they're doing. Now that they've changed it, it's, there's one in Abu Dhabi this weekend, right? Yes. What is that? The now. King yeah. of the Mats? But it's, it's Mats, also yeah. something else. Oh, well, they have the Grand Slam and the King of Mats running okay. simultaneously. So the King of Mats is an invitational event only for uh, World Pro champions or Grand Slam champions. So you need to have won a Grand Slam to qualify to enter. I really missed that whole boat on that, mm. like the whole ranking system for Abu Dhabi. I just wasn't even aware it existed. I would have done all those tournaments, but I kind of just no one told me. And well, there were a bunch coming. Still time? No, still yeah. time. Those yeah. guys were literally keeping it secret. They're like not talking about it because they know <laughs> that if they don't tell anyone, the <laughs> other good fighters aren't going to come and like mm-hmm. take a, a shot at the the ranking system. Well, you got the, yeah, so you got the Abu Dhabi Grand Slam events, and they're kind of dotted around the world. But then after Worlds, uh, the one big one that everybody's targeting coming up in September, of course, is ADCC, right? Oh, yeah. That's and the big one. That's the big one? Yeah. ADCC is probably, probably at least the exact same prestige as Worlds, I would say, right? Yeah. yeah if not more. If not For more. some people, True. much more. <clears throat> yeah, because it's every two years, yeah. and it's invitation only. You can't just qualify to enter. So Pretty much, I would say... There's a lot of IBJF world champions that no one really cares or knows about. Mm-hmm. But if you're an ADCC champion, yeah. it's like in the grappling community, that's a really valuable. Yeah, My question for you about, about ADCC is that 
Atos has so many guys going to ADCC. How are you guys? Man, do you I don't know what we're gonna do. Even for not non ADCC tournaments, yeah. we have like four heavyweights. Yeah, it's yeah. me, Kynan, Lucas, and Gustavo. Yeah. yeah. And Josh is pretty heavy too. Josh can fight like middleweight or middle heavy. I mean, so and Dom's above you guys though. No, Dom too. Dom's yeah, Dom's heavyweight too. Now. Yeah. Dom's heavyweight yeah. now too. We have so many heavyweights. There's uh, Andre doesn't like the fighters to like have matches against each other. Mm. He wants it to like tra- do like a trade off thing, like where you give them like you, if you bow out to them once, they bow out to you next time. Kind so of in deal. that case, then there's no like in house qualifiers where you get to rep the team or anything. Or? I th- there's so there's always A team and B team. Sure, I would say so. I guess. That's decided based on the training room, like how you're doing in the training room. And but then, you don't have like a specific fight off in the gym that, okay, you're going to be 18. I, th- I think we should do that. I, I would think that's a good idea. <laughs> well, um, it's a, it used to be common practice in the teams back in the day, because yeah, yeah. especially when Worlds only had like a cap uh, or they had a cap on the amount of people who could enter. I like, think that would be more fair. It's kind of how BJ Penn got yep. in, right? Mm-hmm. He, he won the qualifier. Yeah, I think that would be a really fair way to do it. Just have like, if you guys were to fight at this tournament, you're going to have your match on this day at the gym. Whoever wins will will the other person will bow out to them. That would be a good way to That's deal with cool. it. I'm not sure what his plan is. But ADCC, you guys have to fight each other, right? True. I, I I don't mind fighting my teammates. I don't like that's like really frowned upon, I guess. But I've been doing it since I was a purple belt. I've always right. fought my teammates because I when I trained at Lloyd Irvin's, that was just the norm. You just fought, even when we wouldn't want to fight. He would make us fight each other. So <laughs> like did I fought. You, did, I, you, did you fight Galvao in in uh, UAE one time? Yeah, and that was like what? a weird kind of a weird thing because like. We, he wanted me to bow out. He said, like, you can bow out, and I'll give you the prize money. And I was like, oh, I kind of want the prize money <laughs> and, the, and the medal. It's good money in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. yeah. So he, so we, we eventually fought. It was like a, it was a ref decision, and he won. Um, it was kind of weird because I just got there to the mm. team, and I was maybe a little stubborn mm. to the whole, like, hierarchy thing. Mm. Um, but yeah, he doesn't. He's not competing anymore. So he was. He was also heavyweight, middle heavy. Heavyweight. Yeah. So yeah. it's like so yeah. many guys that, like super saturated that weight division. So do you think you'd want to return to eighty eight though if you could? Um, for ADCC, I would probably do eighty eight. Yeah. yeah, I can make that, especially because the the way the weigh ins are scheduled, mm. the way they do it, it's a day before, mm-hmm. and you can cut a lot of weight like that. I hate cutting weight, but for ADCC, it's um, kind of got to be done, right? Yeah, it's got to be done because yeah. people are cutting for pretty heavy for the mm-hmm. upper division. So I'd probably do 88, and I don't know where the other guys are going to go. But I had to fight Kynan last year, too. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I don't know if Kynan could make 88 anymore, could he? No. He, no, big. he, he can. Yeah. Yeah. He can for sure. Yeah. He made 80. He was, like, he was like 220 and then cut to that wow. for ADCC. No, he's he's, like, he's too, lighter huh? now, yeah. Wow, that's huge. So ADCC is a, is a big one, and, um, man, we get a lot of questions in here about – Kind of about like the leg lock game and stuff like that because you know you're known for being uh, a technician in jujitsu, right? Thanks. You're a technical innovator. Thanks. I'd say it. I mean that's that's kind of one of the labels that I think is, put. is yeah. Is, 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 myself and also any, anytime anybody thinks of Keenan, they think of the various <laughs> tricks that you come up with, the various uh, you know new things that you're unveiling in competition, and and you know your kind of work in 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 teaching jujitsu in the seminars and stuff. Yep. But we were talking about this a little bit earlier. Is that Nogi it's it's kind of really diverging from the kind of the gi game nowadays, yeah. right? Now how do you see that happening? Because it some... feels like the Nogi game is, is exploding, right? Really. A lot a lot of people doing it, a lot of people it's getting imploding. Different... Imploding. Yeah. Really? There's significant can we all just agree that there's significantly less techniques in Nogi than in the gi? 
significantly less. Yes. I would agree. Yeah. Yes. Less options for There sure. are less yeah. things you can do. It's not less technical, but there are less techniques. It is less technical. Oh. 100%. Nogi <laughs> is a much more athletic game. Mm-hmm. Well, that is this true. Is, this is coming from someone. I have more accolades Nogi than I do Gi. Mm. If you look at my stats. Pull them up. Let's pull them up. Look at the stats. Nogi world champion. I'm a Nogi world champion, and I'm like two-time silver ADCC and two-time bronze ADCC. So I've been in it for a while. So I know the game, and I'm not saying this from a biased perspective. I do enjoy Nogi, or I did enjoy Nogi. Not anymore. Not as much anymore. I'm not a huge fan of Nogi. But there is less to do in Nogi because there are no grips. This is the fact that you cannot make a grip on the Gi, and like there's so many chokes that are just gone. How many chokes are there with the Gi in Jiu-Jitsu? Yeah, yeah, true. You could argue there's probably a 1,000, like if you really were to try and find every single one, Mm. variations included. So just there, that's a 1,000 less techniques. Point made. <laughs> <laughs> Let's well, wrap it up. But then you say the nogi is imploding. Oh, it's so and it's you Im- don't like it anymore. It's imploding so in the sense that it's becoming like all these people who trained jujitsu in the gi and nogi, they were sort of training nogi how they would train gi, which is like the classic I pass your guard, you play guard and try and sweep me and then try and pass my guard. It's changed to where the guard pass and guard play aspect has kind of been removed by the by leg locks. So now it's the goal is leg lock. So it's like be on top. If you're on bottom, leg lock. If you're on top, avoid leg lock and disengage and then maybe try and pass. But there's just not a lot of, there's not as much passing happening in competition. I think at the lower levels, yes, but I'm, I'm like speaking from like the black belt competitive level. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, yeah, sure. The metagame is different at each level. Like mm-hmm. purple and blue belt, you can get away with a lot of stuff that doesn't work at black belt. But at black belt, you don't really see a lot of guard passes anymore from the high-level guys, whereas in, in the Gi IBJF competitions, you, you see the full gambit of positions from yeah. guard play, pa- people get passed, people get their backs taken, people get choked, arm barred, leg locked, everything's there. But in the in Nogi, it seems like it's kind of imploding. That's why I say imploding. The game is what was out here. It's becoming more dense and smaller around leg locks and takedowns. Mm. And leg locks and wrestling. We have a yeah. comment here. Basically, wrestling. so it's catch wrestling? <laughs> it, yeah, it's become submission, and it was always it was ADCC has always been like this. Right. But the IBJF rules from um, transferring into Nogi sort of encouraged a more passing guard playing style, which I really liked because I I like playing guard. But as people as the overall level and understanding of passing and being on top progresses, it's the the inherent advantage of being on top is becoming more prevalent. So being on top of someone, you have gravity on your side, and that's a huge huge advantage. And people are getting much better at taking it advantage of that advantage Mm -hmm. so people who like to play guard guard is actually becoming less effective in nogi and to the point where you can't really play an effective guard in the sense of sweeping someone and getting on top with it the guards that are effective now are guards that set up leg locks Mm -hmm. or set up takedowns so like 90 percent of transitions you see in nogi are a leg lock position to sweep or a sweep attempt into like a single leg or double leg something Mm -hmm. like that and you see a lot of people uh basically Ignoring the guard pass to go to the back as well. And this is both gi and no gi, but we saw it much more the recent no gi worlds that, you know, you can force a guy from top, he'll give the back, you get the back, or now you're using the leg entanglements to open that up as well, right? Yes. Yeah. The leg entanglements, it's becoming, uh, it's just shifted a lot. The Danaher guys take full credit for that. They've really shown what you can do by attacking someone's legs. And uh, Gordon made an awesome transition to like use that to sweep at the last, at no gi worlds as well. Um, but even he, he, I think, will start to struggle if he were to try and continue playing guard against all these guys uh, just because it's it's too easy to avoid 
the engage. It's like easy to avoid the engagement when you're on top without getting penalized or just like attempting to you you back out from the danger and then you re-engage and before as the guy struggles to try and set something up again you can just disengage completely so you just we get saw a, that you get a free reset every few seconds if mm-hmm. you want without it being penalized so and yuri figured that out pretty quickly right yeah so in their second match yuri did much better against the sweep attacks and wasn't really able, like gordon wasn't re- really able to mount an offense as much in the second match um and I, that has to be just from the, the learning curve that he experienced from the first match. Mm-hmm. Like there's no – Gordon wasn't performing worse. It's just he became aware of the techniques. And so that's why I prefer the because I think it has more long-term uh, – the effectiveness of all positions. Do you think though that – do you think there will ever be a time in jiu-jitsu that we're going to hit like a dead end? Like, hey, we know all the moves. There's nothing else you can do with the with the human body. And it's just going to be almost like – now we have to manipulate the rules to mm. get an advantage in jiu-jitsu. Hmm. Um, pr- probably not. I think it's one of those things where moves are forgotten and then rediscovered. Yeah. I, I, I feel I was going to say the same thing, actually. I feel like it's almost uh, cyclical that, you know, back in the day, everybody used to pressure pass, and then it became a whole standing passing thing. And then the evolution to the leg fighting game was, okay, now we need a pressure pass to kill that. So it's kind of a... So it's a, the evolution, it kind mm-hmm. of dies off and it comes back around again. Almost, yeah, I think right? it's like it, it comes in waves of the, the competition era as the, those competition guys fade out and the new ones come in. They're coming in with a certain game. And then as those guys fade out, the new guys are coming in with a new game or a different game that was used to beat the older guys. And it mm-hmm. kind of just cycles through. So no one can know <laughs> everything about jujitsu. So I think it's based on like your knowledge of the sport. And then, I mean. So that could potentially happen with the issue in Nogi. Unless there was some sort of website that could somehow teach you every single jiu-jitsu move that exists. Is there one out there? <laughs> Is there? There's one being built. <laughs> it's called peanutonline.com. That's the one. What so, about people who say that um, they like no-gi or they, or they prefer no-gi because it... Um, it is more they feel like applicable to like the real world or okay. things like that. Do you, do you... Like a street fight? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I think it depends on where you live because if you're in cold weather... They got jackets. You're wearing jackets. <laughs> I'm not saying you should worm guard someone in a street fight. Mm. But I think applicable, people think about it more like for M- MMA. Um, and it's true, gi training. But like, sport, you can't make that comparison anymore. Sport jiu-jitsu is sport jiu-jitsu. I'm like, just because I'm a sport jiu-jitsu fighter does not mean I don't understand the basics of jiu-jitsu, right? And all you really need in a street fight is basic jiu-jitsu, yeah. right? You need to have some basic understanding of how to control someone. But what happens if the other guy knows jiu-jitsu in the street fight? Now you've got a sport jiu-jitsu match in the street, mm-hmm. right? Because now you're using jiu-jitsu against jiu-jitsu. And what is sport jiu-jitsu? Like it's combat ju- jiu-jitsu. It's jiu-jitsu. <laughs> it's jiu-jitsu designed to beat jiu-jitsu. That's what sport jiu-jitsu is, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. New moves are innovative, like the moves I come up with, are designed to be successful against other jiu-jitsu. So. And I guess um, – a huge influence on jiu-jitsu development in general is, of course, going to be the rules in which people fight under, right? So you look at the recent innovations such as the leg lock game. Mm-hmm. That was the direct result of competing in tournaments which allowed leg now, like, locks, Before someone gets right? mad at you here, <laughs> I would say the, the leg lock game is not – being innovated, it's just become popular again. Good point. Or it was one of those things that's sort of like the dark arts back in the day, mm-hmm. right? Because people have been doing leg locks forever, and John Danaher attributes a lot of his leg lock knowledge to Dean Lister. But it stayed in the shadows because there weren't that many opportunities for people to use them. True, because right? they were banned out of a yeah. lot of events. Like every two years, ADCC is like pretty much the yeah. only time you'd see heel hooks. Mm-hmm. So. And, and 
gi jiu-jitsu is more popular overall. There's more gi jiu-jitsu people training, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if that can be proven, but it sure seems like that. Like mm-hmm. it seems like there's mm-hmm. more people training in the gi. I remember though, it's getting getting more even though it feels like, it feels like there's more no-gi centric gyms and everything like that. That's a good point. Yeah. True. And that's probably because of like the Joe Rogan podcast. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like literally. (laughs) (laughs) Eddie Bravo. There's one reason. Talking about all of the no-gi jiu-jitsu guys on the Joe Rogan podcast. Mm -hmm. But I think if people were exposed to the same amount of gi and no-gi jiu-jitsu, like the overall public, it would be. We got to get Joe Rogan to talk about. You and Felipe Pena and Bouchesha. Like, when are we going to get Joe? We're going to talk about those guys. We should get him in here. Get him on our Ooh, podcast. What an idea. He's had Gary Tonin on, the, on there, right? He, he talks about Gordon yeah. all the time. But, you know, do you think he's missing out on some of the other jujitsu names? Um, I don't know. I don't want to. I wouldn't want to be on that podcast. I'd be way too starstruck. <laughs> it's, it's tough, though, <laughs> because, like, everything that Joe Rogan has done for jujitsu, like, him, him alone. He yeah, alone, that's true. He right? he opens up a lot of people's eyes to like what it is. Yeah, I think definitely. most people get started because of the UFC. That's why I started. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get into MMA. Now we had a few questions in the in the live chat actually about MMA, um, and sort of asking if you're going to do it. But the answer is that you you were, but you decided not to, right? Yeah, I actually started training jujitsu for MMA, and I started exclusively no-gi training. My first three years of my jiu-jitsu was just no-gi. So that was at BJ Penn's in Hawaii? No, that was actually in Placerville, huh. uh, Northern California. It's like I tra- was training under my dad. He's a blue ah. belt. But I, I did wrestling, and I, I had some of the wrestlers from my high school come train with me, and we just were like not really knowing what we were doing, just learning off YouTube and stuff, and uh, training a lot of no-gi stuff. And then when I moved to BJ Penn's, I started getting into like more MMA training, did a lot of boxing and MMA training, and pretty much only no-gi training. But around that time was when I first heard the Marcelo quote about gi training being important for no gi. So I was like, oh my God, I have to train in the gi. And I ha- absolutely hated it at first, just like every no gi guy who <laughs> tries gi, they hated it at first. But then I started to realize that it's like way more expansive and way more to learn. And personally, I, I like the learning aspect of jiu-jitsu. That's what I enjoy. Um, I think a lot of people like that. They like that you can go in every single day for 10 years straight and yeah. learn something new every single day. True. Like, that it is, keeps you yeah. super yeah. entertained. Really yeah. it's so for me, something new. that's when I was like, wow, this gi thing's pretty cool. And then I started doing more MMA sparring. And then when I was at Lloyd Irvin's, I was training for uh, an amateur MMA bout. And uh, I got a concussion. And it was like... Training. Yeah. yeah. Like the MMA training there was just absolutely brutal. Really? Like, probably really stupid to train like that. Like just getting... Just too hot? Yeah, just like way too much live sparring. Like, right. I don't think MMA fighters train like that anymore. I think, yeah. no, culturally, I think people are a little bit more aware of CTE and head trauma and yeah. stuff. So they've, they've backed away from hard mm-hmm. sparring quite so much, right? But so I, this yeah, was a while ago, like right? It. When I was training or that when, you, whole, when that happened? Yeah, that was like 2012, 2013. Right, right. Yeah. But I, before that, I was training. I've been training MMA since like 2009. Mm. So uh, I stopped around 2012. I just was like, you know what? I don't want to get punched in the head anymore. That was the catalyst. Was yeah, just... I was like, wait a second. Like, my brain is my best asset in jujitsu. Like, I need to be able to use this thing. And one day, <laughs> I, I had like really bad vertigo from MMA sparring. Like, I was like dizzy all the time. I tried to go train jujitsu, and every time I lay on my back to do something, I just the room would spin. I was like, I can't even do jujitsu. Can you punch oh. in the head like this? I got to wow. stop. So I stopped. So I don't really have. Any, I don't have any plans to go back to MMA. I would still like to, be, to you do seem some. To be doing all right though. <laughs> yeah, I would still like to do some MMA sparring if the guy's not allowed to punch me. So like, so what's that? So like, no, no, because like MMA fighters approach me on like Instagram and messages and stuff to like bring me out to help them with their camp. As and like stuff. a grappling coach. Yeah, as like a grappling so you, coach. So you could be like a Dylan Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I've turned those down because I want to focus on my own training. 
Um, because I'm still active in competition and I want to. Uh, you got things to up. do. Yeah, yeah I, got, I get got stuff to yeah. do. But if I were to do that, I think it'd be fun to like do some MMA style training with punches. But I just want to punch them and like <laughs> just like work the movement. I always had fun at MMA sparring. It's a ton of fun. Is there an MMA fighter that you particularly a fan of or you follow? I, or? I've always been a huge fan of the Japanese MMA, MMA fighters. Oh, yeah? So, like, I was a huge Shinya Oki fan, um, Kid Yamamoto. There was a guy named Dokanjusuke Mishima. Mm-hmm. You ever, ever heard of him? Say, yeah. I'm probably butchering it. Dokanjusuke Mishima. No. He was a Japanese MMA fighter. He did a lot of the... I don't think he ever fought in Pride. He was in some of the smaller events, but he had like awesome jiu jitsu and stuff. Yeah, he had uh-huh. such cool jiu jitsu. Like him and Shinyaoki were just killing people with jiu jitsu back in the day mm. in MMA fights, and I thought that was so cool. And yeah. that's why I wanted to get into MMA and jiu jitsu because I saw these guys doing cool jiu jitsu stuff. And then as I, my eyes were opened a little more, I saw just cool jiu jitsu guys doing cool jiu jitsu stuff. I was like, it's kind of the same. But those two guys were super sick. Did you see um, Ryan Hall uh, at the end of the year? There, I was like weird moment for yeah me. i bet it was mm, especially yeah. what did you think about that i mean it was kind of cool because ryan hall is like ryan hall's been heel hooking people since ever since yeah like, sure. he's since been before it was, it was yeah cool, right? he's been he's been 50 50 heel hooking people since probably 2009 as well like grappler's quest if you right. look at any of the old grappler's quest he's always been hitting people with that same heel hook not the same entry i don't think but he's always been 50 50 heel hooking people and i'm a huge fan of the 50 50 heel hook like the inside inverted heel hook not the inside Senkaku position, but the actual 50-50 heel hook, I think that's a super strong position and really hard to escape, and I like the hand fight from there, and that's probably my best heel hook position myself. So, uh, yeah, that was cool to see. And I do that same setup that he does, like where you sort of invert on it a little Mm -hmm. bit, and the the heel is exposed, and you can't really hand fight to defend it. But yeah, that was weird, because I I trained with BJ Penn for a long time. Uh, Ever since I was like 14, I would train on and off with BJ Penn. You guys close? uh, Not really. Like, I have his phone number. He coached me at Abu Dhabi one time. Oh wow! We don't hang out or anything. Sure, <laughs> sure, but yeah, but I you I've have been, a relationship though. Like yeah, I've been. Contact. I mean, he he probably would say what's up to me if I saw him. Nice. But I when I first started training jujitsu at like four years old in Hawaii, he was like sixteen training with my dad. Mm. So my my stepdad introduced BJ Penn to jujitsu. That's the connection. That's the only oh, reason wow. we know each I other. Know that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I rolled with BJ Penn back when I was like a kid, and then I went back when I was in my teen years to train because of that connection. And eventually left to focus on a more jiu-jitsu-oriented career path. So, yeah. yeah crazy BJ, fight, though. BJ was, was the BJJ guy for a, for a while there. I mean, because, you know, he, he was the first American world champion in IBJJF, right? And then, of course, he, he went to MMA so early. But yeah, I he think was he's still a, our guy for a while. But I think my generation of jiu-jitsu, it's like he was a huge, huge influence mm. on us. I think nowadays it's, it's kind of weird to see all these these – MMA superstars in my eyes like they're just so famous in my eyes but then in modern day MMA culture like there's random MMA fighters I don't even watch or know about that have like 2 million followers on Instagram and BJ Penn only has like 200 300,000 or something wow it just blows my mind because BJ was the biggest name in MMA for a very long time would you like to see him come back do some jujitsu now I think he should just chill just (laughs) he's earned it yeah just enjoy enjoy your life if whatever he wants to do would be just do it I think a lot of a lot of the MMA fighters, a lot of fighters in general, don't know 
when to stop. Like they just keep fighting forever and ever and ever until eventually. Of course, you're gonna in MMA especially. Like that's why I can't wait for Gordon Ryan to fight MMA because he's gonna get knocked out eventually. And it's gonna be so satisfying. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. Like no, you all, all of no, all all of the jujitsu guys who want to go to MMA, I'm just secretly like my my evil side is just like <laughs> eventually they're gonna get knocked out one day, <laughs> and it's gonna be funny to watch. But I I'm saying that because I know I'm not gonna do MMA because I know I'll get knocked out too. Like eventually you're gonna get knocked out. Yeah, it's just the brutal reality of MMA. And on a long enough timeline of fighting MMA. Someone's going to catch you with something, and you're going to get knocked out in front of all of your friends and family. <laughs> and No, it's a good point. Like, I feel like all the time in MMA, people just don't know when to, like, hang it up. Yeah. Like, you got to hang it up, like, after, like, 30 fights max. Maybe if you're undefeated, just stop, man. Just yeah. retire. Like, yeah. I mean, to be honest, the, the, the good and bad thing about jiu-jitsu is that the, the good thing is that you can keep going without so much of a, a serious physical consequences, right? But yeah. but you can just keep going. So well, you know, what about what about jujitsu then? What are, when is the right time to retire? In I think. Well, that's what's cool about jujitsu is I don't think you ever have to retire. It's just, yeah. I mean, you, at a certain point, you're probably going to be less effective against yeah. in the adult division. But, but that's but, what Masters Worlds for. Yeah, but even a lot of the for a very long time, a lot of the older guys, older in the sense of like the adult division, because yeah. the adult division is 20 to 30. But a lot of guys who are like 32, 33, 34 were dominating those divisions from like 2012 to 2016. Yeah, mm-hmm. we saw a lot of guys peak in their early 30s, yeah, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. you, you see a lot of pe- guys peaking in uh, like early 30s. So that's what's cool about jiu-jitsu, especially because you don't take a lot of wear and tear unless you're doing no-gi jiu-jitsu. Which you're gonna get messed up eventually because it's dangerous and no one should do no gi jiu jitsu. We got a, an interesting um, question in the live chat here as well. What about uh, what about Cron Gracie? You know, oh, where is that guy? Well, he's fighting in the UFC soon, right? Okay. He said he like he had his four fights in Japan and he's gonna be fighting in uh, fighting in the UFC pretty soon. I, I think swear, he's training with AJ. I've that guy's what? I think yeah, I've seen he is. Cron, Cron Gracie is the most talked about, least active competitor of all time. <laughs> <laughs> the Gracie name is strong. Yeah, yeah right? it is strong, right? Yeah, the legend is uh, strong around him too. He's managed to some of it rubbed off on him, right? For sure, he was really good though. Yeah, in in jujitsu, he was super good. Did he win ADCC or did he lose to Mar? He lost to Marcelo, he right? Marcelo. Yeah, he was really good nogi. Mm-hmm. I think his gi game just didn't really transition because he tr- kept trying to play that really basic collar. Oh wait, didn't mm-hmm. he win in 2013 in China? No, that, I think that's where he got tapped by Marcelo actually. He beat, um, actually, mate, wait, Gary, no, no, he won 2013. Are he sure? lost, uh, he, he, he tapped to Marcelo in 2009, Barcelona. Then he Jamie, lost. Young Jamie. Yep. <laughs> get on that. Then Marcelo won in 2011, and then that's where Marcelo stopped uh, stopped competing. So Beijing, I China. I remember his match with Gary. Yeah, yeah that, it was that, that was one. Because he beat China. JT. But that's around correct. Yeah, he armbarred JT. He choked Gary. But for some reason. Cron Gracie. So he did win. Okay. 2011, 77 kilos. Wow. 2011. Uh, sorry, 2013. Thank you. Gotcha. All right. <laughs> I knew it was up here somewhere. Wow. Man, he must have been super young then, huh? Who? Cron Gracie. Because I don't think he's that old now. Right? He's got to be like 30 now. Yeah, he's a little bit. <clears throat> but we got um, we got the IBJJF Europeans coming up. We're actually all leaving like tomorrow and uh, Saturday. It's going to be a cool competition. But that's one you know pretty well, right? How many yeah. times times you've done it? I've only done it at Black Belt once, actually. Only did it the yeah. one time. The one time where me and Lucas closed out double goals. Yeah, last man. You had a, you that had was a, a good run. Yeah, you had a really good tournament, that, that tournament, right? Do you, yeah. Did you like it? Did you I, the experience? I had fun. Um, I was like... Coming off, I was like a halfway point of that year long of competition. So I was like super motivated, training really hard. And I went to that event, and the goal was to win, of course. And 
I think I submitted everyone. You yeah. did? Yeah. yeah. I and I everyone. think that was the first time I saw you use the Gubba Guard. Yeah. So I actually, the very first time I ever used that was in 2013 at the Kumite. There's wow. a guy on YouTube. Man, there's... I'm not going to get into it. But, <laughs> I, yeah, I used it the first time. That's actually Jamil uh, Taylor's move. Really? Yeah, he, he showed me it. He showed me the position. I sort of systemized it and added a so lot wait, of So, wait, he would have been a kid right then when he, he did He was, that. like, 14. Green wow. Guy. Yeah. How old? How long have you been playing the, the lapels? Since Purple Belt. So it's actually a funny story. I, I've been... the worm, The worm guard has been in the lab being created since Purple Belt. It was designed to survive against JT... <laughs> because JT would crush my guard every single day in training for years and years and years. And he was there. like He has like the ultimate big brother power over me because he's been there for every step of my guard. He knows advancing. it inside out. Like every time I tried something new, it was probably tested against JT first and mm-hmm. failed. So I started using it because normal guards weren't working. He would just crush every guard I threw at him, spider, lasso, any sort of open guard I played, he would pass so easily. And it became it, it sort of came out of necessity because like he's so good at breaking grips. If you've ever rolled with JT, it's insane. You literally have to play guard without grips because he's so in, like so good at stopping you from actually getting any sort of grip control. So like I have no grips because every time you reach for a collar, he breaks it instantly. Sleeve grips, he breaks instantly. You just can't get any sort of traditional. Grip. And they say that his grips are like monster as well. Yeah, right? he's crazy. His grips are crazy strong. So like eventually, because you can't grip anything else on him, I event- I grabbed the last thing that it was there is the lower lapel. So I started having to grab that to have any sort of control against him to survive longer. And then because I could get that grip, it was the one grip that he couldn't take away from me. And so using that, I was like, okay, this like I can do stuff with this kind of. And so I'd like start with just like foot in the lapel, like a spider guard hook, but it's, there's not really a lot of attacks from there. Braulio calls that like galaxy, galaxy guard, but, guard yeah. but there's not a lot you can do except hold on. Yeah. And so uh, he actually banned me from doing that. He said I wasn't allowed to do that, like foot in the lapel against him in training, because <laughs> it, it, which is good though, because there's really not no attacks from there. It just yeah. stalls the position. Mm-hmm. So from that, I started to work <laughs> a little more. I, the worm guard before it was worm guard. I called it the marionette guard. Like a puppeteerish <laughs> like thing. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really puppeteering I'm anyone. Really glad you changed the name. <gasps> yeah, it's a stupid name. <laughs> yeah. But so I scrapped that one. But I started playing with the lapel back then in like 2012, 2011, and uh, sort of started building on it over time. And then only once I went to Autos, um, I used the lapel on those guys, and they had no idea what to do. And it was suddenly much more effective than it was against JT. And I was like, wait a second, JT only beats this stuff because he's been there for every step of the way. Mm-hmm. But all these other guys are don't know anything about it. So then I was like, hmm, maybe I can do something with this. So if you watch my purple and brown belt matches, I never touched the lapel once. But in training, that's all I was doing. Mm-hmm. So like purple and brown belt, I was beating everyone, but I was beating them all with just more traditional jujitsu. But that was a super long kind of developmental phase for that then. Yeah. And so I, pur- I purposely kept it secret because I wanted to use it at black belt. Like the mm-hmm. plan was just to like wipe black belt with it and just like no one's going to see this coming. And it worked at Worlds. I, unfortunately, I got DQ'd in my division, but I think I really could have wrecked my division at the first Worlds. Because it's super good against knee cut style passers and Homlo was in my division that year. And he was just going to get roped up by it. I knew it. I was like, when I fight Homlo, I'm so ready for that knee cut pressure because that's like what Worm Guard thrives against. But that was the year I used it pretty successfully against Bushesha. Um, I lost the match, but it was a really good match and I was able to sweep him a couple times with it. And then I, that was the time I beat Leandro with the, the Worm Guard position. He was just, he was really lost at that time. Didn't know what it was coming to him. So do you think people have caught up to it yet? Um, some of the high level guys, like, like the top of the top, like Lucas Buchecha, or Lucas Buchecha, Leandro, those guys are really good at stopping the offense. I don't think there's really any like 
counter that anyone's figured out. Lucas is probably the best. But Lucas. He's like Barbosa. Barbosa. Oh, yeah, right. but he's my training partner, so it doesn't count. Yeah, because he sees you do it every day. Yeah. Right. So he's really good at shutting it down. But there's no, from what I've seen, there's no real position that counters it. Like, oh, you can't do worm guard against that or you'll get passed. It just doesn't really happen. Homolo just commented. He said that actually he was going to pull guard against you. <laughs> <laughs> he probably would have wrecked me then. <laughs> Passing wasn't very That's good. That's the best story I ever heard. The yeah. whole worm guard story. Is there is there a next step to the worm guard? Is it constantly evolving? And For sure. It sort of expanded into like three trees, which is like the worm guard positions, which is like uh, reverse Della worm guard, Worm guard and worm guard, and then squid guard, which is like kind of a style like what Cobrina and Satoshi were doing for a little while, but Cobrina stopped doing it. Satoshi used it a little differently. Well, can then, you explain that to us then? What is the difference between the worm and the squid? So, squid guard, I'd have to show you probably, like, but squid guard is like when you, yeah, I can't even talk about it, like how it is, <laughs> but it's the worm guard passes under your leg and their leg. And locks in the whole position, but it's strong because it has the only, it's the only guard that controls the rotational movement of someone rather than up and down, forward, back. So it actually controls which direction the person's facing, which is its biggest power. You can force a person to only pass to one side, and it, you can force them to pass to your good side. And usually when passes occur in competition, it's because someone's passing left to right and they're able to pass to the side that you're bad at. So people usually, like, the, statistically, the passes that occur, occur to a person's bad side, right? So Worm Guard eliminates that, and so it's a huge advantage right there. And because of the way it controls the person, you can force them to almost look away from you completely and expose their back. So it's, like, probably one of the most effective guard back takes, um, much more effective than the Barambolo. And it has a really some really good submission options as well. The Squid Guard is a little different. Um, it's not as much of a control of the person, but it opens up a like a like an outward sweeping motion that kind of leads into like 50-50 if you want, or leg lock attempts and some really strong umaplata attacks. Uh, you played Squid Guard against uh, Leandro. Yeah, it worked pretty good against him because I hadn't used it against him before. Um, that was probably the most success my guard has had against him in a while, where I swept him with it a few times, and I think he felt pretty uncomfortable underneath me. Um, but he learns so fast, like on, like literally in a 10-minute match. match, he can like <laughs> figure you out. It sucks. It's amazing, actually, his fight IQ, right? Yeah, he's really, really good at what he does. And it's crazy because Leandro is one of those guys that you wouldn't necessarily label him as a technical jiu-jitsu player. Yeah. But that, that's almost it's a backhanded compliment because he is, but he's just, I, I guess we were talking about this against somebody else earlier, is that he, he's very good at what he does and he keeps it simple. Right, and he knows how to win. But right. his jujitsu, what he actually shows in a match, is maybe not as layered like as if somebody so, like yourself. So for me, like I'm so about the technique of jujitsu. Like any any of my moves, anyone can do. They don't really take any sort of inherent physical attributes. Mm -hmm. If you know the techniques and you know the gripping system, you can apply it. Almost pretty, like literally everyone: tall, short, fat, skinny strong weak it, it's all the same because it's all based around a grip control and the grip's power comes from like the friction of the your own gi and like it really locks it in place as long as yeah. you can hold on to the gi they're stuck there you don't really it doesn't really require any strength guys like leandro and Pushesha, i think they're so good and they know their body so well it's like an incredible amount of coordination and understanding of what their body can do against someone else's body mm -hmm. and how they fit into the like the other person's game like they know where to position themselves and like their unique traits and speed and ability to move along both with of them are quite good as well at making people fight on their terms as well right yeah for sure you know they try to avoid well they're also good too, from everywhere yeah and they so. try to avoid getting too sucked into other people's games and 
And that, that's, a, that's a huge thing, right? Because I know that when you go out, for example, you don't want to react to the guy. You want to make him play your game. You want to get to your good positions. Yeah. Is that true? When you go out to a match, do you have like a real strategy, a real plan of exactly what you're going to do against this guy, against this guy? Um, it's more like guidelines of where you kind of want to be. Like You have to be comfortable on top and bottom. And then when you're in either one of those positions, you want to try and get to your grips first. It's not necessarily your game, but it's just your grips. Mm-hmm. You have to make grips first. Whoever makes grips first is going to be more comfortable until you break those grips, and then you can attack your grips. It's called tempo in a jiu-jitsu match. Have you heard that term? It's a chess term. Tempo is very important in jiu-jitsu. It means if I attack you with a threatening move, you have to defend it. Mm-hmm. It's not possible for you to defend my attack with another attack. You have to consciously defend my movement, and in that movement of defense, you're not attacking me which means I have another opportunity to attack again. And only when you break that tempo to a position where you are in neutral, the other person can then attack you, right? And then you're on, you're on the defense, and they can continue attacking. So if you watch guys like Leandro, they're always on tempo. They're the ones initiating each movement. They're the ones making you defend over and over and over again. And if they ever get to a neutral position, they're really strong at not letting you mount any sort of offense to the point they actually, ha- actually have to defend it. This is fascinating. Are you it's a chess player? No. You're not a chess player, I'm but terrible is chess. that what tempo means in chess it, as yeah, well? It's the same thing. It's yeah. something you that you took uh, from chess. You should come out with a website or something, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's interesting because we had a comment and some guy actually said that you're the Gary Kasparov of jiu-jitsu. <laughs> it's is that a chess guy? Apparently <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> I just Googled him. He's a chess guy. They, they, they do say that jiu-jitsu is the kind of human chess, physical yeah. chess, and so on. But it's it's just a, it's a term you picked up. You're not a chess player? I, I know it, it's from chess, but I don't play chess very mm-hmm. well. I mean, I, pl- I play chess here and there, but I don't play like seriously or haven't really studied it or anything. Um, I'm not, and I'm not good at it. I briefly tried to get into it. I played AJ Agazarm once, and he beat me, and I was like, I'm never playing this again. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> never doing chess again. So I won one to AJ. I know it's terrible. <laughs> oh, but uh, this stuff totally fascinates me too. I feel like the only other person who's kind of like putting putting jujitsu in this type of like frame is Danaher. You know, you know, I haven't seen a lot the of high level uh, strategy stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. just breaking it down to the big picture of tempo and there's a lot of there's a lot of fundamental ideas of like how you can play jujitsu effectively that are like that, like the up down left right philosophy. Mm. I love talking about that one, but there's no time. Uh, you have to go to my website for that. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of things that sort of like you can follow <laughs> these fundamental rules like tempo and like up down left right where if you follow them, it can improve your overall all level. And it's, it's, there's more to jiu-jitsu than just knowing a technique and then doing the technique. You have to n- know options from each position. Mm-hmm. That's what it really comes down to. It's like if you're aware of the options and aware of limiting options from each position is what allows you to be good. So like an example of that would be um, putting someone, like if you're passing and you put someone into reverse Delaheva guard and you have like sort of a knee cut position. The reverse Delaheva guard is an incredibly limited guard. You pretty much only have two options, maybe. Like, you can spin underneath for a kiss of the dragon. You can maybe do, like, some sort of, like, spider elevation sweep. But other than that, there's not really a lot of attacks. So when you're in the position, you feel it. You can just grip their collar, and bam, you killed their one option. You grip the collar so they can't spin underneath to kiss the dragon. Now you immediately gain tempo in that position because now I'm the one who can attack, and they literally have to break my grip before they can do anything. So while they're trying to break my grip or do anything like that, I can be attacking. So just by limiting his option, it allows me to gain tempo. So it's not necessarily just like being aggressive gains you tempo. It's being aware, like putting someone into a position where they have limited options so you can predict their options more reliably. Whereas if you're in a, more of an open guard position, 
they have a lot of options. They can do a million different things. Getting grips on the pants isn't necessarily going to ensure me an offensive attack. They're going to be gripping your legs, your your pant legs, your sleeves, your lapels, anything. So it's more much more open. There's options are expansive. There's so many things they can do. So your goal is to get to a position more of like maybe a pressure position or a like I like cross grip on the pants that I maybe like the year I was competing uh, the year straight I did a lot of cross grip on the pants which is like one of the few open guard passing positions where you limit their options almost entirely so once you get one of those grips they have two or three options they can do rather than a thousand so it's sort of like narrowing down what your opponent can do and then that's why people it's like people call it like Jedi mind tricks in jiu-jitsu like how does he, how did he know what I was going to do it's not you're not psychic. You're not seeing a thousand options that the person can do. It's just you limited them to two or three, so you can more accurately predict what they're going to do. I actually uh, I read this about chess players years ago. Is that you know there's this um, it's a, basically it's a, a false theory that chess grandmasters are thinking you know ten to twelve moves ahead of you, mm-hmm. and they always used to say that about jujitsu black belts. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, he's so good. He's like ten steps ahead of me every way. But it's actually the difference between the expert and the novice or the intermediate is not that you see more options, is that you eliminate the options that don't exist. Right, exactly. Whereas the beginner or the less initiated, he has to spend time processing the options that, are the, that he perceives are there and eliminate them and think, okay, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. Yeah, I found my option. Right. Whereas the, let's say the black belt in the jujitsu terms, he knows intuitively, no. There's, there's this, 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 and, you know, the choice then between them is a lot easier and a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. Now, is, is this something that you actually, like, study when you're, like, I don't know, at home or something? Or is this all stuff that you mm. just kind of Are you guys like, like likes to, like, write things down and, and have a whole plan? No, I, I always wished I could be. I always wanted to be that super organized guy who, like, studied footage and made notes. I feel like that would be an awesome product one day. Like, if I had kept, like, jujitsu notebooks... There's a guy I trained with, Andres Bernowskis, who had like 10 full notebooks of like all of his discoveries of jiu-jitsu. And it was like this awesome page, like this awesome little uh, like moleskin notebook that he had with all these little diagrams he had drawn. And it was just chock full, like completely front to back of just jiu-jitsu knowledge. And I always thought that would be an awesome thing that he should yeah. try and sell one day if he has them still. Um, I personally don't do that. I actually, when I'm not on the mats, I barely think about jiu-jitsu. <laughs> I literally... <laughs> And that's for my own sanity because I, it can obsess you. And when I first started jiu-jitsu, I was obsessed, like, nonstop every time. But it was because I didn't have the opportunity to train as much. Mm. So all of my time would just be on YouTube. This is why I failed high school because I was literally <laughs> just on YouTube in, like, 2006 just, like – watching submissions 101 like oh the pentagram choke this is the most amazing choke i've ever seen and then i like go try and practice it completely useless choke by the way <laughs> but so. this is i mean there is a lot of jiu-jitsu knowledge up there right obviously you've been spending you spent years thinking about this developing it mastering the craft and so on and um you're doing your seminars you've got your website you're passing it on and it seems like you have a lot of material to pass on yeah right? my goal is not just to sh- teach what like my in- innovations because before I started innovating, I had to learn as much as I possibly could. So I would say I have a very full knowledge of what is out there in jiu-jitsu. It's pretty rare that I see a new technique. It happens sometimes, and it's always a very refreshing uh, breath of fresh air um, when I see something absolutely new. Um, but a lot of – you have to be able to sift through the bullshit because there's a lot of new stuff that's like, oh, I've never seen that before. But I can look at it and be like, mm, that's probably not going to work, whereas like maybe – the rest of Instagram is liking and sharing the video. It's like, eh, you guys are probably doing yourself a disservice thinking that this is actually going to be effective. So what I want to do is I want to be able – because I feel I feel like my skill is 
I'm better at teaching than I am at competition, actually. Hmm. Like, I'm, like, I can compete well, and I think it's mostly because of the element of surprise. Like, I'm not a super athlete like some of these guys, but I can surprise people with things they've never seen before. So it's kind of like a build-up option. It's like I, I have to spend like a year figuring out a new, a new trick, and then I do it to people, and I, I can be successful with it for a while. The Worm Guard has a lot more longevity than that. But against it's more like, of a system rather than a yeah. Trick, so right? like a good example is what you said: the Squid Guard against Leandro. That was like kind of a two-year process of mm. me not using it against him until I was like, okay, now's the time. <laughs> this is my chance, and I messed it up. But I did get the sweep effectively, and I was like, oh, it, so it did work. But I wasn't able to beat him in the rest of the match. That's so insane because I don't think anybody else is doing that. Oh, I was gonna say, is there anybody else out there who's like really innovating that that you watch or that that um, you maybe even just the Worm Guard? Is there people who who are doing the Worm Guard that you like to watch? Uh, there's not really a lot of people doing the worm guard, and then the people that are doing it are doing it wrong for the most part because they haven't learned it properly. Um, gotcha. What is the right belt to start learning the worm guard? I think so. I, there's a misconception that worm guard is an advanced technique, and it really fits in somewhere in between closed guard and open guard. So I would say white belt, you should be learning basic positioning. You shouldn't be learning worm guard. You need to understand what jujitsu is first. You think you should be learning heel hooks at white belt? You definitely should learn how to defend heel hooks, not necessarily doing them. But I think heel hook is just as much an integral part of submissions as triangle, umoplata, rear choke. They're all submissions. They all hold equal weight, I think, in the grand scheme of things. And I think worm guard really is a closed guard. It's one of those – like closed guard should, in theory, be the strongest position in jiu-jitsu because there's nothing the person can do to you really effectively until they open the closed guard, right? So the – their options are completely limited to opening the closed guard. You're not really going to see people attacking people from closed guard, except maybe the Gary Tony heel hook thing where they throw both feet over mm. um, or picking you up and slamming you or something. I don't know. But you're not really going to, like, choke someone from inside their closed guard. So those options are super limited, right? So that guard should be really good. But it's pretty hard to break people's posture if they're good and pretty hard to, like, set up conventional arm bars and stuff. But worm guard has the exact same power in that it's a completely closed guard. The circuit is closed. They can't do anything until they escape the position. And unlike closed guard, it's a lot more secure than closed guard. So once you get there, you can stay there as long as you want. At that point, if you're stalling, that's on you. You're just a staller because there are a ton of attacks you can do from there that are super effective once you get the grip. What's hard, what's that, hard that, that's that's interesting you say that because a lot of people uh, criticize the worm guard as a so-called stalling position. Right. I think you, I've you see it as an attacking well, position? Well, I think I've completely disproved that. If you watch any of my matches that I get worm guard in, I almost yeah. always submit the guy or take their back. It's pretty much my highest submission rate position more than anything. I probably submit people with the worm guard armbar more than I do like bone arrow. Like you said, that that your performance at Europeans last year was like a just a, a clinic of it because you did you submitted like everybody with something off of that. It seemed like except for maybe Adam Wardzinski. Yeah, just against Adam, I played top against him. Uh, yeah, so I think to answer your question, the right time to learn is now. <laughs> <laughs> there you uh, go. Yeah, they're, they're, it's not an advanced position, especially when I teach seminars. Actually, people struggle with like learning Kimuras more than they struggle with learning worm guard. Maybe I've just taught the worm guard seminar so many times that I know how to. I know all of the, the pothole, the pitfalls that people may fall into. But it's it's a very simple position once it's actually shown to you and like what you can do from there. Once you get the idea, because it's just not conventional jujitsu. Normal rules don't apply there. It's like a different dimension, kind of. But it is jujitsu. It's just it's almost like anti jujitsu. It's like mm. it's literally the, the. It feels like when you when you grab like the the um. 
lower lapel, like it just instantly confuses people. Like they're just instantly like, yeah, and okay, that, something's going on and I so don't really know about it. I talk about this at the beginning of every seminar I teach about worm guard. And that is, I have to explain what the lapel control does because people don't understand what it does and why when, like, why when I grab the lower lapel does it feel like a strong control? Like, what is it doing? And it's because the lapel itself, the way geese are made, and until someone changes the design of geese, it's probably always going to be this way. It actually controls you diagonally along your back. Mm. So by pulling the the front right lapel, it controls your left back shoulder because it pulls tight there like that. And so that's what it is based off of completely. It's every other grip is linear up and down. Nothing really controls you le- like rotationally, rotationally mm-hmm. except lapel, the lower lapel guard grips, which is very weird. Like cross grip on the sleeve, kind of. You can like maybe do something from close guard. But as far as, yeah, it's it's kind of surprising to people because they don't really understand how like what it's doing to their body. The feeling of it. The feeling yeah, is, it's like, it's a different it's like, feeling. Like, 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 why, am I being, why is my posture being broken down in a diagonal direction? Mm-hmm. You know? Now, when it comes to the teaching of this uh, – it seems that it's within your goals, within your career goals, that you, you, you want to teach. You want to actually you want to take this and you want to show it to the world. Yeah, because I, I think with my unique style of jiu-jitsu, because I have positions I've created from almost every position. I'm just mostly well-known for the worm guard. But that's my real skill in jiu-jitsu. It's really – I'm not a fantastic competitor. Sometimes my mindset can be kind of weak. Sometimes I feel like maybe I don't train as hard as I should. But – the one thing I'm very, very good at is finding new positions in jiu-jitsu. I don't know why. They just they come to me in training. Like I don't really I don't sit at home like analyzing a problem. I'm just training and I'm like, oh, maybe I can do this. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But I put in a lot of hours on the mat and I've found a lot of different things. Um, so you've obviously got the mind for it, right? But is that is that part of your mission? Well, what I want to do, which I think I have a unique ability to do, is I think I could like if you gave me a white belt, I could make that white belt really effective with just my own creative techniques and not learning any other jujitsu. That <laughs> would be Ignoring kind of, everything awesome else. Experience. Yeah. <laughs> like all, if obviously they would need to learn defense from everything else, but I think if their entire offensive game was built off the moves that I came up with, I think they would be really effective. It's like, and a, I'm not going to do that. Cause that would almost be like, that'd be weird. Like it's almost like, cloning someone and it's raising like that, their that, child. It like, made me think of that Three Mistaken Strangers movie. Have you guys seen that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, where yeah, like, the they, like, where like, they like, kidnapped yeah. like, the kids and then like, kind of like put them out in different yeah. families to see how they would grow. <laughs> what was that? Uh, Does anyone out there want to donate their child? To yeah. <laughs> what, what was that Netflix show that just came out, The Choose Your Own Adventure Story? Oh, The Bandersnatch. Bandersnatch, yeah. like, where he, th- he like, thinks he's part of like, some experiment. <laughs> That's going to be some, one of my students. <laughs> now, obviously, I want to teach Who's all... controlling me? Yeah. <laughs> obviously, I want to teach all of jiu-jitsu. But I think that would be my my main goal is like to I want to try and create a like a competition team eventually, of like people using w- what I've come up with, and I think actually once if I open a school one day and I have more time to actually focus on techniques rather than my own competition success, I think I could actually come up with a lot more stuff, hmm. like cooler things. I think the world the, the, it's very an open field because no one really is coming up with anything new. It may, may, I don't really know what Danaher does. Like I, I haven't watched any of instruction, his instructions. You've, you've never been to train at the Blue I, Basement. I've never been there. No, I want to go and see what it's like. Mm. I've trained with Gordon plenty of times. I've trained with all of them plenty of times, and Gordon swears by that guy. Like, but I don't understand why he swears by him because Gordon is the most successful of all of the, the camp. Like, a lot, all those guys are very, very good. Gordon is head and shoulders above the rest of them, right? Like, he's so much better than all those guys. So it has to be a lot of just Gordon himself not just John. But they've all had their own fair share of success. Yeah, they've all done very well. And obviously what he's teaching is effective. But I would like to see, like, 
what he's done, what he does that's new or different or something. But I'm sure he has a lot ton of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, just I guess a lot of it's just like the the systemization that, that yeah. he's done, right? And I think you, you do a lot of that too, right? Yeah, I think I think like putting it into words that people can understand. Maybe yeah. he's doing that really well and sort of well, opening their eyes. Gordon to actually said that uh, one of the things that he really respects about you and your gee game is that you're one of the only people that he's met that actually has a systematic approach to, for example, guard passing. Hmm. You know, because I think a lot of Danaher's um, teaching is based around systems. And oh, Gordon has the leg lock system, the back attack system, et cetera, et cetera. But do you think that there is a lack of that in gi jiu-jitsu? Yeah, I think it comes from uh, the way schools teach. If you go to any jiu-jitsu school in the U.S., besides maybe Danaher's class, it's literally you go there, you learn a random move, a lot of times it has no basis on what was taught the day before or even the week before or anything that you've learned before. It could just be totally random. There's no real goal of the technique other than here is one piece of the puzzle and like you hand it to these people who have no idea where to put it. So that's why jiu-jitsu takes so long to get good at is because these people are getting thrown puzzle pieces, this big puzzle of their own specific game they have to figure out for themselves. But then there are systematic like it would almost be like instead of handing you a puzzle piece, I hand you a piece of the completed puzzle is like what a system is, right? So you can find big chunks of it like the Kimura trap system or the worm guard system or the leg lock system or their back takes, back take system. Those are all like chunks of the completed puzzle, which makes learning a lot easier. And people just don't teach that for some reason. And I think that's because they learned that way. Mm. So it's kind of something that has to be broken. And then eventually people will start teaching systems rather than individual techniques. And that's what's going to raise the overall level of jiu-jitsu like much more. If everyone starts doing the back take system that Danaher does or the worm guard system, it's going to impact jiu-jitsu as a whole. Like I was talking to you about earlier, like if I, I've never taught the full worm guard system anywhere. I just recently filmed like a, a nine hour instructional on every lapel technique I know. Wow. It's going to be called the lapel encyclopedia. It's got over nine hours of footage explaining not just the worm guard. Most of it is what I call intermediary positions, which are positions where you're not necessarily in a guard and you're not necessarily in a position that is recognizable. Like, you can't name it, mm. right? Those are intermediary positions. And there's a ton of those when it comes to the, the lapel. And you have to know how to navigate those properly and still be in control. So the first half of that whole instructional is literally just that, explaining, like, how to control someone when you don't have a position and all the things you can do from there and all the setups you can do. So uh, that's what I'm working on right now. And those are a lot of things that people don't teach. And... The misnomer of invisible jiu-jitsu is weird because if you ever watch someone teach invisible jiu-jitsu, like some, I, who, who are the people that teach invisible jiu-jitsu? Is it like a Gracie thing? Henry Aikens, I Aiken. think. If you actually, yeah. I if, mean, you, if you watch what they teach, it's actually just a, ba- a basic jiu-jitsu technique. Right. It's not like a con- even a conceptual thing. Mm-hmm. It's just a technique. Like that's all it is. But invi- true invisible jiu-jitsu are the, pos- the positions that don't have names. The transitions, the bits in between. The in-betweens, the in-betweens right? The upside down. Right? <laughs> so it's like it's the part that doesn't have names that isn't taught ever. You're never going to ha- have someone teach you like, what do I do when my guard is open and the guy steps here? Like, mm-hmm. What are your options? Well, and usually that's where the, the biggest mistakes are made. And that's where people capitalize on, on attacking. Right. It's like, you know, you're strong in one position. You're strong in another. There's that gap in the middle. And that's where people find their way through. And that's where the high-level guys rise to the top is those are the, the people who are really good competitively and just overall really good. They figured that out for themselves right. faster than everyone else. Because those, attacking is not that easy, right? If you're just going for a straight-out attack, a lot of time the guy, 
He knows what to expect, knows how to counter it. It's kind of easy to shut certain stuff down. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the time, especially in the, the really close, we're talking like highest level world championship matches, it's, uh, it's who can make the other guy make a mistake, right? Yeah. And that's where the matches are won and lost. And then one, one of my weaknesses um, for competition especially is then you have the whole game of the point system and playing the, the refs, like how the refs view positions, how like little things you can do to gain an advantage and then incorporating like not doing anything to ride out the advantage that you gained by playing the refs and playing the points and playing the times. Like, I'm really bad at that. Hmm. Like I'm good at, at jujitsu. I'm <laughs> good at like the position, but I'm not super good at that like super strategic understanding of like getting a point and then waiting. Like I don't like to wait. I want to keep attacking and doing something. But a lot of times doing normal jujitsu in a competitive aspect isn't super effective because someone can go out there and beat you even if you're better than them at jiu-jitsu they can score an advantage or do something that could have been an advantage could have not on one day maybe it's an advantage on another day it's not and then if they just play a more passive game and disengaging you can lose now let me ask you something because um you were pretty open in um in basically saying that you felt that that a lot of the referees aren't necessarily hip to what's going on in modern jiu-jitsu, that these guys are from a, a previous generation and mm-hmm. there's a lack of education among the referees. That's that's pretty clear how you feel there. But um, especially after last year's World Championships and the call and the match with Gaojo and stuff, that, um, you know, there was... I'm not going to say necessarily that there were straight-out claims, but you felt hard done by by the referees in that situation. Do you feel that there is a prejudice against you as an American with the Brazilian you know, uh, dominance within the federation or in competitions in general? Well, I, any time, anything that has opinion-based results is going to have bias involved. It's impossible to avoid it, especially when there's no clear cut, like, you are not supposed to be biased in this situation. No one's telling them to not be biased. There's no, like, it's sort of implied, I guess, like, based on your own moral code to not be biased, but people are going to be biased no matter what. You cannot avoid it as a human. So my issue is not with the refs not knowing all of their own rules, which I think is kind of bad. Like, if you are if you have, make as much money as the IBJJF, you need to put more time into getting really effective referees. Educated referees. Educated referees. If you're paying these guys 200 bucks a day to come ref for you every once in a while, that maybe they ref every fifth tournament. Like, not all of them are there every single time. Some of the refs, like, they don't really care. They Maybe they don't even want to be there that bad. Like, there's no passion there for it. You need, like, some serious training of a multicultural group of referees, that's as unbiased as you can get. It's like making sure you have people from all walks of life refing, right? But what sucks about my match and why I was so upset about it, like human error happens. I was just upset that I made a human error, but I still should have won. Like I made a mistake. I, I lost Patrick Guardio's back and it resulted in me losing the match. I, technically, by their rules, I should have won because of the way the ankle lock system works with like how points work when you come up at the end of the match and it's recreatable throughout time and that same instance has happened very different uh, a lot of different times all because he sat back for for an ankle lock and you came up and i came up and and in in history which is all we can reference based on their rules is that if you come up at the end of the match the match ends he should get an advantage i should get two points and that didn't happen instead he just got an advantage i got nothing so like that's acknowledged. Like basically, they acknowledged that he did something, but then they didn't acknowledge that I did something. So it they it was a mistake by the referees. It's not a matter of like their opinion was so like I don't I'm not sure if it was an opinion based thing or if they just did not know their own rule or what happened, but it was an inconsistency 
and that's what was upsetting to me. So you don't feel that there's some grand conspiracy at work against you here? No, not necessarily. I've won referee decisions. I've lost referee decisions. I've never won a referee decision where I was like, yikes, I should, probably should have lost that match. Like, thanks for the ref, the win, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think eliminating as much control from, like, referees should not dictate the outcome of a match as much as possible. It should all be within, like, I think overtime should happen more than ref decisions. Like, there should be overtime. At least in an overtime, you have control of what happens. And you can you can make the overtime be uh, a very clear-cut result. Like, first like to score. What, like first a golden score? score? You're right. Yeah, okay. first to score. Mm-hmm. That's a fun, fun to do, too. If you ever, like, a really fun <laughs> drill and training is, like, mm-hmm. first to score. Advantage or points. Yeah. It's very fun because it it's like, you, you see have people to, people go for it. You have to <laughs> think, like, we're starting on our feet. If I pull, he may take me down. Like it could be a takedown, it could not. So you have to be very careful and like crafty. It's like it's basically rock paper scissors at that point, but it's still fun to play. And I yeah. think at least it would be more within your own control, um, rather rather than ref decisions, which can be biased and weird. And then lack of education of the refs if they just are unaware of the points, the the point situation or unaware of the unique position. And I'm just like especially salty about those positions because I've been DQ'd a lot for ref mistakes. Like uh, in 2014, my first year at Worlds. My plan was to kill everyone with worm guard. And then in my division, a guy pushed my foot across his hip. Uh, I remember that. Diego Gamonel was his <laughs> name. He pushed my foot across his hip, laid back, and was like, ah! <laughs> and the ref immediately DQ'd me. And, they, and then he jumped up, ah! Yeah. But they, <laughs> before that, they had just put a rule into the, the, into the rule book that they were no longer going to instant DQ people. And that if a reap occurred, they would stop the match. Give a penal- take the foot out and give a penalty and there would be no DQ. Yeah. Because there's no real immediate danger if a foot crosses. Like, why are you DQ- DQing people? It's like if someone put their foot in the gi, like inside the gi or like your hand inside the gi. You don't stop the match and DQ them. You just, just take, take it, it out. out. Yeah. So they had just put that rule into effect. The ref didn't follow the, the rules. He just DQ'd me. And like that was like, I've taken a lot of shots at Worlds. That was one of my shots. And they took that from me. Mm. And so I like when things like that happened, then it happened again against Tarsus. Last year, right? It was 2016. 2016, okay. Yeah, I, I, uh, it was right after, yeah, right after ADCC 2015. I did a Long Beach Open or something like that. And I attacked a toehold on him. And when I attacked the toehold, now if you do a toehold, you know that it's not, like, no matter where your foot goes, you're not reaping them at that point. You're toeholding them. Because the way that your foot moves, it's just, your knee isn't even bending in, like, in the heel hook motion. It's just the toehold motion. So as I toeholded, my foot went across his hip. Again, they didn't stop the match. Tarsus yelped and like looked at it and was like, ah, like, ah, refs, like, look. They didn't stop the match and take my foot out again, which is in the rules. I just got DQ'd. And I'm like, why are you guys, like, what is this? Like, can't you guys follow your own rules or like understand the position? Like, the reap is not supposed to occur. And their, their argument was like, well, your foot crossed, he yelped, and then the match was stopped, so we couldn't recreate the position, so you're DQ'd. It's like, okay, man. Thanks. Those are those are the things that really stick with you, huh? Yeah, because it's like it's inconsistencies in their own rules. Like, why am I playing your game if you're not going to follow the rules? One See, of the, sorry, go ahead. Well, one of the questions I'm going to switch it up here. One of the questions that we had from um, one of our viewers was, what, "What is the most memorable, like the, the best thing that, or some of the best memories that you have from jujitsu? Your most memorable win? They're or, not at competitions, that's for sure. Training, like the training is." the best part of jiu-jitsu right i think that's why most people enjoy jiu-jitsu is that that's what you do every single day it's the training partners it's the friends you make it's the connection you have with other people that you can't the places really get. you go yeah tr- probably just the opportunities it's afforded me is my yeah. best 
like all the places I've been. I've seen the whole world. I've been everywhere. Just move a little bit closer to the microphone. Sorry. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> you but you don't have a you don't have a um, a competition memory that was like man that that one was actually the, my purple belt double gold grand slam was pretty awesome. That felt really good because that was my first year. Previously, I had I lost a lot of tournaments. I never had really any competition success. That was, that was your breakout year, right? Yeah, that was the year where I kind of figured out like. I was doing better. I understood how to train. I was competing a lot. I was really confident mentally. And I said what I was going to do, and I went out and did it. And that felt really good. Yeah. Do you feel Do you feel any um, pressure on you as, like, an American, this innovator, this pioneer? Um, pressure is a, pressure's weird because it doesn't exist, really. It only exists within your own mind, right? It's an internal creation. It's, it's completely true. fictional mm-hmm. within your own mind. So, like, it's a mental battle that everyone has to deal with. Or you don't have to deal with if it doesn't occur for you. Some people, they just don't feel it whatsoever. I think the majority of people feel pressure, even if they have nothing riding on it. If it's like a local tournament, they feel pressure. Like they don't want to let down their friends. They don't want to let down their teammates, their coach, whatever it is. Um, I think if if pressure does exist, then it is usually a manifestation of fear and anxiety. right? Because as you said, the fear of not necessarily losing or getting hurt, but the fear of looking bad. The fear of even, disappointing people and stuff like that, right? I'm not even talking about in competition. I'm just saying, mm-hmm. like, as this, I mean, you stand apart in jiu-jitsu from the rest of the crowd. You know, do you? Thank you. Do you have Why, this? Because you, yeah, because you're. I mean, you're this. You don't American, think you did? You're a technician. You're creating all these moves. Your engagement with the community, all of that. Yeah. Cool. Um, <laughs> I don't. I don't really see it like that. But I'm kind of dis. I'm honestly very disassociated with the like. As much as I engage in the in the community, I'm kind of disassociated with what's actually going on. I kind of live in my own world. A lot of things outside of jujitsu that I'm interested in as well that take up most of my time and like most of my brain power actually. But like I said, I only really think about jujitsu when I'm on the mats. Okay, so flipping it around then, what does Keenan do? <laughs> what, what does Keenan Cornelius Keenan do when he's not doing other than jiu-jitsu? Jiu-jitsu? I, I prefer yeah. to keep it private. Because to be honest, I think people literally thought you were just a jiu-jitsu machine 100% of the time and you didn't have any outside interests. Or... I found that I'm actually a lot more productive in things when I put less effort. It's weird. But I think, more. I think for me personally, I have about four good hours in a day to give my all to something. Trying to give more to it, I, it's a, I get diminishing returns like exponentially diminishing returns to the point where I actually will just not even enjoy what I'm doing if I put too much time into it. So I have to like ride a balance of like how much I put into something so that I can stay passionate and motivated about something that I, I need to do and that I care about. But then I, you have to have a lot of other things in your life. And it's very easy to overdo jujitsu, especially when you're in my position for like when I first got into serious competition, all I did every single day was train. And it gets to a point where if you train every single day, twice a day, literally all of your waking hours are going to be jiu-jitsu related. Because if you train twice a day with hard, actual hard training partners, when you're not training, you're asleep or you're like comatose. And your brain Covering is – for sure. Yeah. Your, brain, like, your brain can't function the same. Have you, if, you've ever, if you train like twice a day for three days in a row, try and do a math problem. Try and have a conversation with someone. It's, your brain does not work anymore. So for me, when like my asset is the ability to think about jujitsu and like come up with stuff, and that's like my liter- literally my livelihood. That's how I make money is like creating jujitsu techniques and teaching them to people. So you need that brain power. So I need it. So if I commit myself too much to, maybe I'm justifying something. Like uh, like some people might say I'm like justifying my own laziness or something, but I feel like I really need to like cradle that little 
glowing light in my brain and keep it alive. That little spark. I'm like trying to nurse this this coal so and keep it warm. Blow, blow on it. <laughs> yeah, very gently, very gently yeah, not yeah. to put it out. <laughs> so uh, for me, I I enjoy my life more and think I can be a lot more productive to my overall goal, long term goals in jujitsu. If I make sure I have the brain power to like put into the non physical aspects. Well, there's something to that, right? There's the Pareto principle, which What's is that? based on that you get 80% of the results from 20% of the work that you actually yeah. do, right? Right. So that's the kind of the angle that you seem to be going for. You seem to be going for, okay, well, I have a, a small window that I put a lot of energy into this, but then I need a lot of time to rest, recover, turn my brain off, do other stuff. But then, um, I mean, for other people, you see some guys, <laughs> let's uh, use examples like... Um, some of the hardest working guys in jiu-jitsu that we can think of, the Meow Brothers, mm -hmm. Gianni Grippo, mm -hmm. those guys put in just incredible amounts of hours on the mat on a daily basis. Yeah. And yet, you know, it, it works for them, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think it's one of those things that everyone's different. Mm. And you have to, as you go through your life, you really need to find what works for you. And whatever it may be, relationships, jiu-jitsu, whatever you're passionate about. I'd like to know, I guess, is that, you know, from the, the core group of people that you train with, because you have some killers, right, there on mm -hmm. the mat at Atos in San Diego. And, um, but I imagine there's probably a lot of different personalities and a lot of different approaches there as well. So, you know, how, how do the people you train with stack up? Do you have people like you? Are they the hard workers who are on the mat 12 hours a day? Or mm -hmm. what? Yeah, there's, I would say the overall, like in competitive jiu-jitsu, the overall culture is to train super hard. Right. And that is the best – I think that is the best way to be successful in competition is to literally just accept that your waking hours are going to be zombie-like unless you're on a mat. And that is the way to be successful in competition jiu-jitsu. And if that was 100% of my goal to be successful in competition jiu-jitsu, that's what I'd be doing. But if that was 100% of my goal to be successful in competition jiu-jitsu, I'd be doing steroids like everyone else too. Did I say everyone? <laughs> Some people. Uh so it's like, it's one of those things like, what are your goals? I have more long-term goals. I don't necessarily just want to be. Can you share those with us? I mean, like I was explaining earlier, it's more about like, for me, I feel like I can make more of an impact with my techniques than with winning a competition. Like winning, winning I, I feel like I, I've beaten so many world champion guys with my specific style of jiu-jitsu and my techniques. That makes more of an impact than having a title. I want a title. I think it'd be awesome. Like it's what I've thought about since I was like 16. I won a world championship in, in the Gi Black Belt. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to stop competing, obviously. But I also can't let that get in the way of, like, more long-term goals where it's like I'm putting 1,000% of my effort into just competition and not setting myself up for the future. Now, you said this before that if, uh, if you win a black belt world championship gold medal and you don't make it and you know, uh, uh, in the career kind of aspect of jiu-jitsu, then you're an idiot. But you have made a career in jiu-jitsu, a very successful one so far, right? And you seem to have plenty ahead of you as well without winning that gold medal. Mm. But as you were saying to me earlier when we were chatting, people kind of put you on that same level, right? Even though you best result you got at Worlds is bronze. Yeah. So I don't correct people when they think I'm a Black Belt World Champion. Uh, <laughs> I am a Black Belt World Champion no-gi, but it's not quite two the time, same. Right? Uh, yes, two-time. I won last year as well. Um, but yeah, I think like people can see how good you are when you roll. I roll with the best guys. I won match of the year, right, in the gi? I lost, but it's a good match. Like I can, I'm one of the guys who can give Leandro a really hard fight. Um, beat him once, hanging on to that one. Uh, so yeah, I think it, people can see if you're good or not. A lot of people who win world titles do, doesn't really necessarily do anything for them. 
there's a lot of guys who win world titles that you don't hear about. You they don't fade away, right? They fade away. They don't have really anything in place. So I think that's why I'm saying for me personally, I try and like my focus is a little bit split from not just competition, but also like like from a business aspect, from what I want to do in the future with instruction, from the impact I want to make on people with my personal techniques and how like I think it's a lot more impactful to change the face of jiu-jitsu and like how it's perceived and the techniques that are used and the overall meta game of how it's played than having a world title. That's not to discount it. Like I don't want people to think I'm saying that because I don't have one. Like I would, I'm, I'm going to keep going for it every year. Do you um, think this is the year that you can do it? Do you think 2019 is the year that I think I could have done it every year. <laughs> is this the year that you're going to do it? You know, I used to, I used to think, like, it's a powerful thing to visualize, right? That comes into visualization. It's good to visualize and say, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. But you have to put yourself in the proper position. So... For me to win a world title, I do have to train. I have to do the zombie thing. Like, I have to do it. But it's a matter of, like, when I can. Or, like, I need to, like, set aside time to do it. So I definitely can do it, and I have to apply myself. So this year, I'm, I have some things I need to do this year. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to apply myself how I need to in the next six months. But I will be at Worlds, and I'm going to train hard. But I don't know if I'll be able to kill myself on the mats twice a day every day. I think I still have the capacity to win. I, last year, or this year, no, it was last year. Last year at Worlds, I did pretty well, right? I did well. I got it to semifinals, and I almost won. I was not training very hard for that. I was training once a day and lifting at night. Not even once a day. I trained four times a week. I'd do the hard competition classes in the morning. One, because my body can't keep up with that. Like tra- Training with high-level black belts is a lot different than a normal gym. Training twice a day at a normal gym where you're, if, especially if you're the best guy, is not very demanding on your body. But if you're training against the guys I train against, it's very difficult to keep up that kind of physical activity because if you roll, like, it, and it's, all, it's different because say I roll someone who's 10 times better than me, that's not going to be a hard round for me. Like, I'm just going to get beat up, right? But say I'm rolling someone as good as me, Every single round, it's going to be a war. It's a war every single round. It's not and like I don't like taking rest rounds. Really, I don't like rolling with blue belts, purple belts. I like if there's black belts in the room, I want to roll with the black belts because that's what stimulates my brain. Is the little fights, the little things. I'm trying to like beat them at their best game, like the little things that they do. So it's pretty hard on your body, and I'm trying to get stronger too. And I like I'm a skinny guy. If I train twice a day every day, I get really skinny. Like starving dog skinny (laughs) and like i can fight like that and win but i want to be stronger i want to be bigger overall um more just like because i enjoy it like i like lifting i like being strong i like the feeling because i've spent so many so many years being skinny guy with just technique so it also allows me to incorporate more pressure passing which is like styles of jiu-jitsu that i didn't really use more that much over the last four years or so so last year i focused on being a lot stronger my game changed a lot especially from the top and uh it allowed me a lot of success. Like Europeans, I won Europeans, won Pan Ams, and then I think I could have won Worlds if I had got past the Patrick Gaudio. I think I could have beat Philippe Pena that day, um, but I did not. However, it's another thing where it's like if I kill myself every single day, I have to be motivated too. Have you ever done something twice a day every single day for years? It's very hard to stay like passionate about it. If you don't have the passion – you're wasting your time. If you go to a, like, so if you go to a tournament and you've been fighting for a year straight, let's say, 
and you don't really want to be there. It doesn't matter how much good, sh- how good shape you're in, how strong you are, how much you've been training. If you don't really want to be there, and you're just like, oh, I kind of just want this to be over. But that world championship gold medal's not doing it for you. That's not the motivation you need to to go. Man, hard. it's all the same. I fight the same guy. You fight the same guys at every tournament. It's just this one has like the the thing. It doesn't really ch- change the way I feel that day for me, honestly. Um, because it's kind of all blended together. Like, like if you fight the same guys all the time, you fight the same guys. Like, is that why ADCC is a little bit different for you then? Because it's less frequent. It's only ever two years. It's different guys. Yeah, I don't know. It's like because you want that. I don't even too, understand right? my own psychology on it. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to explain it, but That's I don't really understand. Good it therapy myself. session with Keenan. Let's Seriously. talk it out. Yeah. But we, uh, uh, hey, why, why don't we switch it up a little bit? You know, this is maybe I should have done super heavy. I because I beat Muhammad Ali twice last year. And he won worlds. Yeah, I should have done that division. <laughs> I'd, I know we'd love to see you against Marigali. That's one match yeah. that uh, that I think the fans would love to see. Also, yeah, he didn't do so well this last year. Mm-hmm. He made a huge splash and then hasn't really done anything since. But he did submit every single person he faced. Uh, every single match he won, he How submitted everybody at Brazilian nationals. Actually, he he every match that he won in 2018, he submitted the person. Right, he lost a couple, but you know, here and there, he lost the worlds twice. Absolutely, sure, sure. lost against uh, Muhammad. I mean, yeah, yeah, but I mean. he tapped out Felipe Pena. He tapped out some really good guys. But yeah, you know, there were a couple of moments where he stumbled and so didn't get the results. But mm. he, and he competed that first year. He's a black belt. He competed like everything. Mm. And in the second year, he like only competed Brazilian nationals and worlds. Mm. Yeah, I think that's why he didn't do as well. You have to compete nonstop. But let's really switch sharp. it up a little bit. I mean, it's great getting insight into how you think and how you feel Honestly, about stuff. But why don't we go to some to uh, some fan questions? Because there are plenty came in, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> many of them were answered. But uh, one of the interesting ones was... What, what is this? Why is this guy... Why is Tommy Lanneker saying trash? The, if you, if you're in, <laughs> in, in the something? Facebook chat, it's been hilarious. You got a couple of teammates in there who have just been... Josh is in here. Josh. Uh, Connor. Connor. Yeah, they're having a good time in the chat right now. <laughs> I should have been reading it. <laughs> Maybe I should have. <laughs> but um, one of the one of the questions was, what do you think it will be the next trend in jujitsu? Mm, I like that trend, like a new thing coming about. Yeah, because you know how like there was the fifty fifty guard, then there was the Baron Polo, then there was lapel, then it's the leg game. It's, I guess you would call it the meta game. But what is the next trend in jujitsu we can expect? Um, there's this really effective way to pass people's guards with the cross pants grip that uh, I started doing last year. If you watch my match against John Agrippo, um, that's nothing new. Like people have been doing cross grip passing, but there's a way to do it that is so strong against guards that it's like almost like you can't play guard. And it kind of sucks because I don't want that style of passing to become popular because then it's like Nogi again, where it's like the guy on bottom doesn't have a lot of options he can do. Um, so that could happen, like where if people start to figure out how to shut down guards better with that style of passing or something new, that could be become a common thing. And then that would change, like for a long time, it's all about the guards, right? Like the guard, what is the new guard? What is the new guard? Generally, yeah. What if there's a pass that just like you can't even play guard and you just have to, then it's just all judo because no one wants to be on their back anymore. That could be cool. <laughs> Judo's cool. Um, yeah, what about, like, do you have any comments on, um, you just watched the recent Nogi Worlds, right? Yes, I did. Yes, okay. So that kind of inside Senkaku position that Gordon, it's the inside triangle, right, which is, like, was formerly seen as, like, a reap and you'd get DQ'd, but he actually kind of educated everybody and said, That's hey. so funny that he taught the refs their own rule. 
<laughs> he went to a, that's a, the coolest thing he's ever done. He went to a, the referee seminar, clarified the rules, and then made a public announcement, like that's being like, guys, are. these are the rules, right? Yeah. They're like, yep. He's like, I'm posting it. This is the video. Here's <laughs> evidence. You said this is the rule, so you cannot. No excuse me. for getting it wrong. Yeah. That was really smart of him to do because if he had not done that, if he had just kept it to himself, learned it at the rules meeting and didn't post it publicly, he for sure would have gotten DQ'd at no good yeah. like, <laughs> right. They would have DQ'd him and right. it would have been a big mess and like he would have been like, what? You, basically everything I didn't do were for all my DQs. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think he learned from my mistakes right. there and like figured it out and then did it. That's pretty cool. Um, but that like I've known that position's been legal for a long time, but it's just I just don't go to it because – the refs don't know, so it's like it was too much of a risk. Right? It's too much of a risk. Yeah. You, just, you basically couldn't ever attack anything from you. You couldn't attack knee bars or toe holds from bottom ever. If you're on top, it doesn't matter. Like they just ignore it. Like they don't understand that the position is the same whether you put them on top or bottom. Like the position is exactly the same. But if you're on top doing it, they don't think of it as a reap. But if you're on bottom doing it, they think it's a reap. So now that they understand that, that's super cool. And I hope I hope Gordon competes more in IBJF tournaments and like. Introduce Do you think though he will? Because like I, I think he made nah, his point. I think yeah, he's probably going to move it. on, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is your best advice for somebody who is a lower belt, right? They're just getting into jujitsu. They have the whole big puzzle that we've talked about. What is what some words? If you could tell yourself back in the day, what would you tell yourself? Hmm, just like for overall, best way to progress. Yeah. Um, probably sign up to Keenan online. Right? <laughs> Consistency <laughs> is key. You just got to be in there every day, just trucking away, getting better over, over slowly over time. Try and incorporate other forms of instruction. Don't just learn from just your coach. Try and learn from everything that you can. Um, I think a lot of the like online resources are have the same problem that a lot of gyms have, where it's very scattered and not systematic. Um, so try and find something that's systematic that you can incorporate. Try and learn systems rather than individual techniques become good at the system and not just the technique like i used to get really tunnel visioned on like i i'm gonna have a really good triangle choke and that was it and i'm just gonna shoot triangles all day and that was it but triangle chokes aren't really part of a system so it's not really an effective use of your time do you study a lot of match footage i used to a lot now it's like more passive like mm-hmm. i'll watch the important matches if i see something new in the match i can pre- I, like i never i don't really miss things like if something happens that's new i'll be like that's definitely new i'm going to like pay attention to that cuz i think people study yours i mean we actually have a comment here from none other than bruno frazado saying that he loves to watch your fights and study your techniques oh cool that would explain why it's harder and harder to play worm guard against everyone <laughs> <laughs> yeah people are definitely i think people learn a lot about it from watching my matches and see, seeing uh, what they can do against it um, i don't really study people's matches because most people do the same techniques like, it's pretty rare for, to find someone who's like, what is, like, that's a completely unique technique to that person. Most people are using variations of the same stuff. So I think it's more about, like, for me, when I study a match, I try and, like, see, like, what the, the personality of how they fight. Like, I totally inaccurately assessed Craig Jones' match personality because he totally did the total opposite of what I expected him to do when we fought. He just only wrestled me, but I expected him to play guard. Um, so he completely were you, were you kind of uh, a little bit stuck on your first encounter, like yeah, that was still I, in your memory. Yeah, and I was like totally prepared for him to just do what he nor- normal Craig Jones things, but he just totally changed it on me, and it really took me by surprise. And I didn't adapt to it like fast enough. Um, but I, I'll tr- I've learned. I will now learn from that, and in the future, I will anticipate the unexpected from people <laughs> and be, try and be aware of everything. But that's why that's also a reason that it's, it's not really a good idea to study your opponents. Like if you're studying your opponent. You can't always just 
think they're going to do the same thing. Yeah. Like for me, for instance, if someone watches all my match footage, they're going to be like, oh, he's clearly going to do reverse Della Wormguard on me. But I wouldn't actually now. I would just go to Squid Guard. <laughs> so it would be like a total waste of your time to study those positions because I'm going to do Squid Guard on you instead. So it's like studying old footage isn't super accurate unless you're fighting the guy like next week and he had a tournament the week before. Maybe it would be mm-hmm. a good thing. But people change and their game so evolves. So then so maybe rather than looking for specific techniques that they utilize, you maybe look for things like traits and so Yeah, that's that's mm-hmm. what I'm saying, like their personality of the match, like how yeah. they conduct themselves in a match, like their their pacing, like I was saying, Tex is really aggressive early. Now that I've said this, maybe he's going to be aggressive late. I don't know. <laughs> just that, just it's like a Schrodinger's box, right? Or is it, is it his cat or his box? Schrodinger's cat, yeah. His cat in the box. Once you, you once you observe it, its form changes. So, how about injuries? We were talking a little bit about injuries. I um, mean, you're talking about consistency in training. How, how do you why deal you ask with... about injuries, Reed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just got a little one, but um, how, how do you deal with? I guess coming back from an injury because that that really mess up your consistency, right? Yeah. So for a long time, I was forcing myself to train a lot, like trying to keep up with a lot of the guys who can train every day, twice a day. But I have, I'm more prone to injuries than most people, I guess. I mean, I, I'm also less prone than a lot of people, but. I have some neck injuries and some back injuries that can become pretty annoying if I train too much and don't take care of them properly. So, some again, less is more. Find a point that you can train where you're not getting injured. Like what how, what amount of training do you need to do to make sure you're not going into training tired, worn out, reflexes slow? All of those things are what get you injured. It's not necessarily like an accident that happens. Mm-hmm. It's your reaction time, your awareness. All those things, once they get diminished a little from too much, you're at higher risk of training. What was the worst injury injury you received? Was it the dislocated kneecap or? Um, That's probably the most painful, but Mm. the least long-lasting effects. Like I can do anything with my knees and I feel fine. There's no position I need to avoid. Neck injuries, I think, are the worst because they just nag you forever. And then the area is like traumatized. So even if you're not injured, if anything happens, the muscles seize up because they're like, oh, no, not again. Mm -hmm. Don't let it happen again, please. And then they they seize up and you're just like out for a few days. And it's not necessarily serious. But man, I've I've met very few grapplers who don't have a bad neck in one way or the other. So many guys I know like, oh, yeah, I can't feel these three fingers. You (laughs) know, so this kind of ties into a question that we asked um, Jamila Hill when he was here, um, about strength training. Now, you, we see you online. You do strength strength and conditioning a lot. Yeah. Mostly strength, it looks like, a lot of strength yep. training. He doesn't do strength training. And he is... How old is he? He's 20, 23. 23. He's 23? 22, no, 21. he's 21. Is he? Okay. Yeah, okay. Let's no, call him 22. <laughs> yeah. No, because he was 14 when I was 20. So he's six years younger than me. And I'm, how old are you now? I'm turning 27 in February. Oh, there you go. So, are you yeah. feeling age? Are you feeling it? Uh, I mean, when you're 19... You're made of rubber. Like I could do. I could. You don't feel it at I all. I don't feel anything. <laughs> um, I had like some meniscus issues back then, but yeah, as you get older, definitely like training super hard. I really feel that super worn out feeling. It sounds like you're careful not to put too many miles on the clock then, because yeah, you're because you got to do this for right? a long time, right? Like right. I don't necessarily want to just be done in a couple of years because well, that was always the criticism of the Meow Brothers. Everybody used to say, wait until, you know, we'll see what they're like when they're 30, right? And whether their bodies will still be able to do what they've been doing. And they're again up there now. They're like 27, 28, right? Um, still hanging in there, though. They, they are still hanging apart in. apart yet. But the question is that, like, you know, how long before something does give? 
Oh. Do you feel that the strength strength training helps you with injuries? For sure. When I'm stre- when I'm doing a lot of strength training, I'm feel invincible. Really? Yeah. Like that's why I was putting a lot of emphasis on that last year, and why I think it helped me a lot because it allowed me to be on the mats more because I had less injuries, and I was able to train harder in those times I was on the mat because I wasn't injured. Like I didn't have to cater to anything or like watch out for. But this. that's also, I mean, a strength strength training session is also like zapping you of your energy too. So you have yeah, to... for sure. But it's definitely not as hard. Mm-hmm. Like they're two different types of exercise. Like muscular breakdown isn't as bad as like I feel like doing an immense amount of cardio can really wear your body down mm-hmm. in a different way. But strength training, I usually feel good the next day. Like I feel strong. I don't necessarily feel so sore that I can't do anything. Whereas if you do like an hour of hard sparring. The next day, you might feel a little beat up, you know. Like, and you prefer like what you call the meathead style of lifting, which is not like a, not like a CrossFit style, yes. not like a powerlifting style. No. I think that there's a misconception of what functional strength is in jiu-jitsu, and they think it's all posterior chain, linear up and down Olympic style lifting. When you, how often do you do up and down motions like where everything's in a straight line in jiu-jitsu? Basically, the only time I can think of is that is that you've got somebody in close guard exactly. and you stand, and you stand up, up to... That's why I do yeah. a lot of deadlifts. Deadlifts mm-hmm. are awesome. A lot of, I do a lot of conventional strength training. Deadlift, squat, rows. I do all that. Explosive lifts? When are you going to do that? I'm, I'm not picking people up and launching them in the air. You know? I don't do, I don't do that. I, don't, I think people get caught up on that for other sports where a sprint, sure, you need to be explosive. You're going to go from like a crouch position and then explode upwards into a sprint in football, soccer, uh, all those things you need. Um, But like that doesn't necessarily mean it's good for another sport. And I don't know why people think that functional strength is necessarily functional for jiu-jitsu. Well, functional in jiu-jitsu is much more like kind of isometric kind of based Strength stuff, endurance. Right? Strength endurance, yeah. Yeah, so like I, I made some jokes on my Instagram about how like I do a lot of bicep curls. But when I'm doing a lot of bicep curls and my curl is strong – my rear naked chokes are so good. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter if you put your hand in there, your chin, your whole arm. Like, I'll just choke you through all of it when I <laughs> have a strong, like, curl. So curls are actually really good for jiu-jitsu. And think of how often you need to be reaching your arm out, grabbing a pant leg, and doing, like, weird omnidirectional strength movements, you know? A lot of times you grip someone's gi and you tuck your elbow in and you're, like, pushing up like this. But you're never going to train that yeah. muscle, per se. But the closest thing you can get to it is doing, like arm workouts where you hit every angle you're like doing tricep extensions you're doing curls you're doing like rows in different directions like all those meathead workouts that put on muscle into a, a place on your body as that it makes you strong in those weird positions mm-hmm. in jiu-jitsu and then it also helps pack on muscle which helps protect injury protect so you injury. are you going to be getting uh, gordon's workout dvd <laughs> i actually have it and really i, I didn't really like it I, <laughs> yeah i have the dvd um it was more how just many like stars. How many stars? Yeah, three out of five stars. Okay. Well, that's yeah. average. Good. Yeah. Okay. It didn't really help me that much. No, are you are you naturally flexible? Or is that something that you work on? Um, I'm naturally flexible, and I don't. Even when I was at my heaviest, when I was at two ten and I was lifting every day, I still had pretty much the same flexibility. I just pref- I actually found myself more on top, just because having extra weight, you're more effective on top mm-hmm. of people who are lighter than you. So I didn't play as much guard. Um, but when I had to, like against Ali, I was still able to play it effectively. So I don't really stretch. I f- like if you play a flexible game, you're literally stretching every day in training. Right. So I don't take anything outside of that. Who's the um, who's the physically strongest 
athlete that you've faced in competition? Because you've gone up against some pretty physical guys. Like Honorio is a monster. Ali is a monster. But like there's different kinds of strength when you feel someone, right? When you roll with someone, you can immediately feel what kind of strength they have. There's people who can move you and then there's people who can't be moved. And they're never the same. Like no person has both of those that I've found. So there's people that can physically grab you and move your body completely to a new position, but that you can also move them a lot of times, even if you're weaker than them. But then there's people who feel like they're made of iron, and they're just like a it's like trying to do jiu-jitsu against a climbing structure or something, and they just don't move. But they're not necessarily putting you out of position either. So like a guy like that who kind of has a little bit of both of that is Urberth, mm. super strong, like crazy strong. When I fought Urberth, like – his body feels like it's made of cords of iron. Like, uh-huh. like you touch his, like, uh, his leg and it's like as hard as this table. And you're just like, what the hell is that? Does he have like something like pads on underneath this? What's going on? Uh, he was super strong. But there's, when you have that kind of thing, a lot of times it comes with a downside. It's a trade-off, right? Trade-off, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think for him it was his cardio. So he wasn't able to like submit me or throw me into the ground hard enough to put me out of the fight. So I eventually got tired, I think, and I was able to take his back with the worm guard. Um, uh, another guy who feels super strong is Tiago Saw. Really? Is that his, how you say it? Yep. Yes. Yeah, Saw. he's like a middle heavyweight, right? Dude, Medium that guy's so strong. Huh. Like, I, 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 I don't know if I fought him ever. I fought him one time, actually, yeah. And he felt, I was like one of the strongest humans I've ever felt. And I was like trying to put my spider guard hook in his arm and like try and bend his arm, and he just kept his arm straight. And I'm like yanking at his sleeve and like kicking my foot into his arm elbow and it just would not bend it was so strong yeah but leandro and buchecha they don't feel super strong they just can move really well really fast and they know where to put their their weight most jiu-jitsu guys who are good aren't don't feel super strong because if you're doing good jiu-jitsu you don't need strength really anyways man i've just lost count of the amount of comments that have come in on on both the youtube and the facebook live chat uh, Lucas is just the, by far about, the strongest human ever, though. Ooh, I'm <laughs> glad you put that out there. Lucas Hulk, like, gonna, that guy's so strong, man. So the name comes with uh, good reason. And he's right? little. He's like, he's like 5'9". Yep. I mean, not that's not that's like average height, but like he feels smaller than me. Like when I stand in front of him, and I just don't understand how he's three times stronger than me. Got that jungle strength, right? <laughs> and then the when we go lift, like I can lift more than him in some things. Like bench, I can lift more than him in. Hip thrust. For sure. <laughs> very strong hip thrust. <laughs> You're uh, very proud of the hip thrust, yeah. right? <laughs> it's, I, I don't even train that move that often. Like, I don't even train that exercise that often. I just pull it out for Instagram every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, I've lost count of the amount of comments that have come in on both the YouTube and the Facebook uh, live chats. Basically, these are literally man, all they, the Octos they, teammates. They comedy. really don't <laughs> like the fact that you've called the Baron Bolo as a dead I position. I know. And no, you know why? Like you know what? That. I don't like when people talk shit about other people. But I will talk shit on jujitsu moves, and I don't <laughs> care if you get upset about it because it's a move. Why is it dead though? It's just not very effective. But there's—I could say that about so many positions that fade out of effectiveness. And I just chose Barambola because I just don't really like it, and it's not as effective as it once was. And you cannot deny that. Tommy is good at it. Mikey is very good at it. Those are exceptional humans that have dedicated their entire games around a position. There's going to be people like that who can specialize in any position to be very good at it. But for the overall jiu-jitsu community, if you need to learn jiu-jitsu overall, you're not, they're not really going to be 
incorporating Barambolo into their game anymore because it's just not that effective. For a, a, it's like you can teach anyone a triangle choke; it's going to be effective. So, do you think with the problem with the Barambolo is that um, at one point when it was more exotic and less known, there was uh, yeah, defense just, to it, and now just, it's kind of it's it's been implanted in the game. Everybody kind of knows what to expect. Jiu Jitsu right? is a knowledge based sport, mm-hmm. and that's why it attracts me and a lot of people. I think is the more knowledge you acquire, the more effective you are at it. It's not how in shape you are. It's not how strong you are. It's not how fast you are. It's about how much you know. And it's not always just about, like I said earlier, it's not always about just the technique, the number of techniques you know. It's about all these little things. And the Barambola is one of those positions that is very easily shut down with a little bit of understanding of the intermediary positions of it. And once you understand a little bit about how their body's moving and what it's going to do to your body, it's pretty easy to avoid the dangers of it. It's not necessarily a counter, like if they barambolo you and you know this counter, you're going to pass their guard. It's not really like that. It's just that if you know, you understand the position, the person's going to be wasting a lot of energy trying to make it effective on you. That's all it is. It's just not like as the knowledge base rises and both, like it was like people who knew Barambolo had this much advantage over the people who didn't know Barambolo. But as they like, the people learn a little bit more, Barambolo is kind of peaked and it's not really getting better. And then everyone else's level has risen to the point where the, everyone knows. It's just another position. It's just another position. Mm. Just like, but it's it's weird. Like close guard too. Close guard, you're not, there's one guy who does good from close guard really. It's Hudson, right? Mm. Hudson like arm bars people from close guard. But yeah. for the most part. Jeremy Canuto's pretty good at it. But yeah. Hudson's the first guy that springs to mind, yeah. Right. And then before that, you never really saw anyone just killing people with close guard except Hodger. So the move has the potential to be super effective. But it's very difficult to learn how to be effective at it. And so like that's a position that has an incredible amount of longevity because even still after so long that that position has been around, people don't really know how to do it properly. There's people out there that do know how to do it. I don't know how to do it properly. I'm not killing people from closed guard. I wish I could. I've always wanted to. And for some reason, I, I just do upper guard instead because it's a little easier and maybe more effective one day because it's basically closed guard anyways. But uh, So that's an example of a move that probably will have a lifetime of effectiveness, whereas Barambola, probably not. You think in, in five years or something we, we may not even see it? Barambola? Yeah. Um. I think there's always going to be a place for the crab ride positions. I mostly am talking about just the, the the first like inversion movement where you're trying to get around the guy's leg and grabbing the pants, and getting into crab ride like that's just not a super effective entry into crab ride. There's better ways to do it. Um, it's a different story if you're both like double guard pull. Um, that movement maybe can get you in there a little easier. I think the crab ride position is very strong. There's a lot to be learned and done from there, but the actual just like conventional barambolo movement which people try and learn first yeah. is the least effective hmm. that's why it's like it's going to be stunted because people try and learn that first roll to the back and that's just not a very good move anymore if you're doing like what tommy does and mikey where they're getting into these crab ride positions from everywhere not necessarily just the barambolo move people are still calling it barambolo when you're in a crab ride but it's really just the, not it's really just the crab ride to the back. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not the barambola. When the, I'm pretty sure the barambola means that movement. Barambola in Portuguese means, like, scramble, right? Kind of, yeah. Something like that. It, it doesn't have a, a direct translation. It's kind of a created word, a bit of a portmanteau I think Andre well, Gaval named that, actually. He was one of the guys, yeah. It was Andre and... Uh, he named Wormgard, too. Did like, he? Yeah. That's yeah. who christened it? The name, yeah, Worm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about things like the... Um, 
this last year, there's been the return to kind of the whole roots element of jujitsu. There's Homolo with his everyday pohada movement. Is that the Nutella thing? The no Nutella. What does that mean? So the kind of the no Nutella thing, Nutella in, in, in Brazil is kind of a reference to something which is fake, which is lame, but generally something from the kind of the modern era. Um, because weak, right? weak, because it's kind of seen as like, you know, Nutella is not real chocolate. It's fake chocolate, right? It's like this kind of like, you know, ingredients which kind of it's seem hazel, like chocolate, but it's not butter. the real shit, right? Yeah. Okay. It's really good. It's really good. Very unhealthy. <laughs> I'm not a fan. I'm allergic. So no Nutella for me, right? <laughs> but Since uh, day one. This is day one. No Nutella. Nutella. But then, of course, there's the the Henzo's Fodacy, uh, the kind of the, the the Homolo's Everyday Pohada. It's kind of this effort to try to um, maybe bring a little bit more authenticity back to jujitsu. Do you think that's actually something that needs to happen? Do you think that I there's think, something been lacking? So the one thing that all those people have in common is they all know what it's like to train really hard for something. And in a lot of jujitsu gyms and culture, it's a little more laid back. Um, who there was a guy on the Joe Rogan podcast the other day who was like mm. talking about how you yeah. saw that clip, Din, Din Thomas, yeah. yeah, and he's like Din. jujitsu gyms they, they just smoke weed and they roll a little bit, and yeah. some gyms are like that. Most most gyms are more chill because they're hobbyists, they're but not, there are some which are super hardcore, right? But there's yeah, there's a lot of hardcore gyms, but I'd say the overall idea of jujitsu is a little more laid back, um, especially if you're an MMA guy. <laughs> So, like, when when people are saying the no Nutella thing, were they talking about competitive athletes? I think they're just talking about it really as a community so as, a, as a whole. Yeah, yeah I mean, I could see that, how maybe it's a little less grindy and, like, a little less about, like, there's a, I think in, in the U.S. especially, a lot of people like the culture of jiu-jitsu and like to be associated with it without actually, like, training super hard, trying to yeah, kill themselves. Putting the work in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't think that's a bad thing either. It's, it's kind of weird because like, they <clears throat> they're yeah. talking about how jujitsu is like, like you're saying, this grindy thing, whereas your approach is more of like an intellectual. Well, cerebral, right? Like, yeah. Let's yeah. let's break down these techniques. Let's train train harder, train smarter. Train I think exactly. there's a time and place for both of those. If I could train really hard every day mm-hmm. and not get injured, I would do it. And like, I think that would be that would be great to do. But I I think my body can't handle that kind of training as much anymore. Um, but I've also like it's one of those things too where like I. I'm still doing well, regardless, right? So it's not necessarily that it's a one way. There's only Either one way to do things. Yeah, like you sure. can, you just find what works for you. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who train super, super hard and don't do well. There's a lot of people who don't train very hard at all and do very well. There's a lot of people who party really hard and do really well. Mm-hmm. Can you think of anybody in particular? John Jones. I've heard. I've heard of a few. <laughs> so it's really just personal preference and. Everyone needs to mind their own business and not worry about what everyone else is doing. I like that. Well, I think that's a great point to uh, end this conversation. Man, Keenan, it's been a pleasure having you in. It really has. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Uh, finally, we managed to get you into HQ. Hopefully, we'll have Super you back here again random sometime. and like spra- uh, spontaneous, right? That's how the best things in life to Good luck at your uh, fight this weekend. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, Third Coast Grappling, live on Flow Grappling uh, this weekend, uh, Saturday. Super fight against Aaron Tex Johnson. Look forward to that live or on demand on Flow Grappling. You know where to watch it. Keenan, until next time, man. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Keenan. See you.